Welcome to Shakespeare Play-by-Play, Episode 5, on Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, Book 1. I'm Michael. I'm Greg. Uh, Sophie. Hi. As said, we are doing Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, Book 1, and... From the pre-episode discussions, I'm getting the sense that we all regret, no, you two, regret doing Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, book one. So how about we introduce our relationships to this uh, book? I regret it doing so much that I kind of regret doing this podcast. (laughs) Because you know that in the progress of going through Renaissance literature, Quite a lot of it will be just like this. This was... I I hadn't read this before. I'd heard of it. Like, I knew there there was this epic poem that was written by Spencer and that he'd given it to the Queen, and that was basically a love letter to the Queen. But, oh, my God. He, he got £50 pounds a year for this, and he didn't even finish it, and... That's just scary. No, it was supposed to be like 24 books in length originally. It was meant to be 12 books in length. He got oh. about six full books, seven and eight were incomplete. Well, whatever it was, it was painful. Definitely painful. Not for me, though. A painful for uh. Virginia Woolf, apparently. And as I was saying before the recording, there's an entire academic book detailing the reception to the Fairy Queen and how throughout history people have held it in annoyance and contempt and refused to read it, and when they do read it, hate it. I, I will I will give him credit for his determination with his stanza um structure. He he would make sure that structure would fit no matter how badly it made the writing. So let us say, Sophie, your relationship with the poem. Oh, um, I had no relation to this at all, in all honesty. Going by the title, I genuinely thought it would be a little bit more like, you know, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream in terms of vibes, you know, just whimsy and fun and in the occasional shenanigans. Um but as I was going through it, not going to lie, a few times I kept thinking this would make a great Final Fantasy or Souls game monster. Yes, um, definitely. I made that point multiple times in my... I, I wrote, I hope that in a hundred years' time someone gets my copy of the book and wonders what the fuck is a Dark Souls. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, that happened a few times. Um, I consumed this both as an audiobook and as um, a thing to read. I kind of did both at the same time because I I will always say that I am not a poems person. I was like, okay, I need to listen and read at the same time or else I will lose track. I I won't know what's going on. I I, I just don't like poetry, which does make me a, a cave person, but I'm okay with that. I'm a cave person that likes Final Fantasy and um, enjoys watching people play Souls games because A, I don't have that console, or B, I know I will be shit at it. My relationship with this poem is that, like Greg, I heard of it, and I did try to read it a few times. I remember years ago I bought the book, tried to read it, gave up halfway through the first uh, canto, 
then a year later, I decided, no, I'm going to do this. I decided I'm going to read this. And then I got, I think, three cantos in, stopped again. I would say that this definitely is not a beginner-level piece of Renaissance literature. If you have trouble reading Shakespeare, you're going to have trouble reading, you definitely will have trouble reading this. Uh, For one thing, for a lot of other Renaissance things, you have to work to get an original spelling edition. You have to spend extra money. Whereas for this, the the immediately available edition, the Penguin edition, or even I think the Kindle edition, it is in original spelling. So you have to get your head around how a Elizabethan person spelled different words. That's already difficult. But, you know, as so recently, I have started a, you know, a Shakespeare book club, and I am also doing this Shakespeare podcast. For this, I have had to read multiple Renaissance English things a month. And as a result, I have gotten better at the dialect of this kind of English. And so this time I was reading and thinking, oh, this is actually easy to understand. So I have come to it again, and I've gotten past that first stumbling block. So if you want to read this, I would suggest first starting a Shakespeare book club and also doing a Shakespeare podcast. That will help you a lot with this. So that is our relationship with this poem. Do any of you plan to read the rest of it? Definitely not. (laughs) Not even the one with a female knight? I just... It's not so much about the story, even. Parts of the story were quite good. I I said before the podcast, it really reads to me like it's a mix of Pilgrim's Progress and the tales of King Arthur mixed together in basically a way that sounds like the guy is sucking up to Elizabeth. Oh, he's 100% Uh, sucking up to Elizabeth. But but in a way that is just, like, really sleazy. It's it's in no way putting any effort into saying anything other than you're wonderful. Like, I, I read somewhere that some of the later books might be a bit more critical of Tudor England. But book one, I just felt like, yeah, this is... Let's keep this for a bit later. Let's put a pin in that because we haven't even got to the biography section. All right. A bit of Edmund Spencer's biography up until he wrote The Fairy Queen. And most of this comes from the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography by Andrew Hadfield. And as with most non-nobles. We don't know much about the personal life or family situation of Edmund Spencer. He claimed he was related to the Spencers of Althrop, a noble family, but of course he would. And for his education, he went to the Merchant Taylors School, who, which was also the school that John Webster, who did the Duchess of Malfi, went to. This was a rather forward-thinking school which said, yes, you boys are going to learn Latin, but also you must learn how to express yourself well in English. So, so far, that school seems to have a good base of alumni. Two of the arguably, definitely in this case, arguably greatest works of English literature. <laughs> that is the sound of argument. <laughs> and we get a sense that Edmund Spencer was not exactly rolling in money by the fact that he, he did go to Cambridge. But he was what's called a sizar, which is 
someone who was enrolled at Cambridge but in order to pay his tuition was a servant for one of the other people there. So he was, if he was related to the Spencers of Althrop, they weren't helping him in any way. He was already a bit of a, I won't say prodigy, but he showed promise from a young age. He did some translations of Italian poems by Petrarch and such people, which were published in his youth. So that's quite unusual even today to be in a mainstream anthology of these uh, translations. His first main book of poetry was the Shepherd's Calendar, sort of that pastoral shepherds loving each other sort of thing, which was very popular in his lifetime. And I might suggest that if you hate the Fairy Queen, you are definitely going to hate any pastoral poetry from this period. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pastoral poetry is specifically like religious in context, right? I would assume so, perhaps. It's about, you know, shepherds and shepherdesses staring longingly at each other in the innocence of nature. Oh, gross. He went on a bit of a hiatus after writing Mother Hubbard's Tale, which made a few ill-placed satirical references to people in high places. His hiatus may more have been a hiatus of publishing because he definitely was working on the Fairy Queen after that. Now, most key to his life and also a bit controversial to his life is his time in Ireland. In 1580, he became private secretary to Lord Grey of Wilton, the Lord Deputy of Ireland. And Lord Grey was not necessarily a good man. He committed a few massacres of both soldiers. Yes. Uh, and Spencer would go on later in life to defend uh, Lord Grey and also defend a rather iron fist. Uh, approach to the domination of Ireland. He said in his book called, no, in his treatise, which was never published in his lifetime, called A View of the Present State of Ireland, he suggested that it was best to really take a strong military stance in Ireland rather than let the rebels uh, in Ireland do more damage. That was his ends justify the means approach. You're putting that very kindly. Certainly. Okay. He, his, view, his view was until you wipe out all culture and language. He had, this, he had this line, so, so the speech being Irish, the heart must be Irish. So his idea was if no one can speak Irish anymore, they'll eventually become English. Yes, I was putting that politely. Uh, so, <laughs> but apparently the Fairy Queen has some of this rather unsavoury um, Irish uh, sentiment in it. But that only comes up in books five, I think. So we don't have to consider that for the moment. At Yay! this point, it is mainly its patrioticness is mainly sucking up to England rather than shitting on the Irish. He, but in Ireland, he did amass a lot of land, including what's called a prependary, a prependary of a place called Effen. Now, this was what was called, this is essentially a venal office. He didn't have to do much work and he just brought in a lot of money from this. So he did, in one of his poems, he did sort of mock people who had these positions, but he did have this position. But thankfully for us, or not so thankfully for us, because he had all of this money for doing really nothing at all, he had time to write his poetry. And aren't we glad he had time to write this poem? And in The Fairy Queen, it is, apparently it was quite popular. He got a pension, as Greg said, he got a pension from the Queen. And in a Romana Clef of his own life, is suggested that he 
got a chance to read it out loud to the Queen, and the Queen liked it, and he read it out loud to her. I'm not sure if that was her just being polite to him or not, but maybe she liked it. But, but as we've mentioned before, uh, the poem is about seven or eight books long, but those last two are barely finished. Or uh, He ostensibly planned for 12 books, but people question whether or not he ever intended to get to all 12. So he died before he could complete it. So he's sort of like an Elizabethan George R.R. R. Martin. <laughs> I mean, touch wood. Uh, I'm not sure if that's hoping for his death or that's hoping not for his death. So I'll just, yeah, I'm not sure. Anyway, so that's his biography. Canto one. We begin with the Red Cross Knight and spoiler, this Red Cross Knight does turn out to be St. George, the dragon killing Knight of England. And this is a story where he goes on to kill the dragon when the dragon's going to be forgotten for a very long time, but this yeah. is... So I will call him interchangeably Red Cross Knight and St. George. But we have the Red Cross Knight with his fair lady Una, or Una, and a dwarf, and they are all on their quest together. Now, the notes in my edition are quite adamant that Lady Una represents truth, and the dwarf represents <coughs> common sense. Uh, I'm not sure... I'm not sure why the dwarf represents common sense. Maybe he's just more down to earth. This I wish to quickly interrupt to ask if the down to earth is a joke slash pun on the fact that he is a dwarf yes. close to the <laughs> ground. It's one of those things where puns were more respectable in the Renaissance. So it wouldn't have been so uh, I don't know that, at that, the time. That, that does sound like a Shakespearean joke. Uh... It just hurts me in the cringe zone. As we go through this, this is this is an allegory. This is one of those rather direct allegories where in this very canto, we have someone called Error. So Error, false beliefs, and Red Cross Knight is fighting Error. So we, quite, we know what's happening there. But other times, the allegory will be a bit more opaque. Like we have a dwarf, which is meant to represent something else. I don't know... What we don't, it's not told to us what he's meant to represent, but people assume he's common sense. So there are different levels of uh, opaqueness to the allegory in this allegorical work that, that has caused some level of debate in the literature about this particular book. But going on, so Lady Una's family is in danger from a dragon. She's been driven out from her homeland and we will not return to this main quest of destroying the dragon for about 10 more cantos. Apparently, this is a, a technique in these chivalric romances called dilation, where we leave the main plot and do something else for a while before returning to the main plot. Uh, was this a source of your frustration? Honestly, no, because I forgot about the dragon pretty quickly. Not gonna lie, I agree. I yeah. When, once we got to the wizard, the dragon kind of like left my mind. Yeah, the dragon flew the nest, man. No, nobody gave a shit. And also, like they, the significance of the dragon is actually not explored until way later. It's like, oh yeah, no, these two are about to go murder a dragon. 
Oh, and then on their way to the dragon's nest or whatever, they go rest inside a mysterious wandering wood where they've gone lost. It's like, okay, cool. I guess that's part of the story. But then, you know, because the dragon was so briefly mentioned in like the first, ah, in the first one or two stanzas and just never mentioned again, practically, you know, why, why would the reader remember? I think they needed some reason for them to be traveling. <laughs> I suppose it's one of those things where if this is about St. George, St. George famously killed a dragon at some point, you're thinking, well, you've given me St. George. He's going to fight a dragon at some point. Yeah. They never mentioned the word George. I think the Knight of the Red Cross would have been a pretty clear symbol. Like, the white with the red cross is St. George's symbol. I think most I thought known that even then, right? I was just looking up because there is a stanza where it suggests that this knight is not yet St. George, that he hasn't like he hasn't earned the honour of being known as St. George. Yes, this is a point I was going to make later on, that this is sort of like a, this is sort of like Skyfall, a stealth origin story. You thought he already had his origin story, but no, no, this is his origin story. I'll see, I was, I was going to go the Avengers and the very first Thor movie, that while he is Thor, he has not earned the right to be the God of Thunder. Uh... <laughs> Honestly, I think that's pretty good. That, I, that's I, a pretty good way I, of putting I say it. That, looking up uh, in stanza 12 of Canto 1, it's like, But he the knight whose semblant he did bear, the true St. George was wandered far away, still flying from his thoughts and jealous fair. Will, Will was his guide and grief led him astray. To me, that kind of suggests like, yeah, this is the guy who is going to be St. George, but he's not yet there. He hasn't gotten that saintly aspect. And considering the rest of the book is all about, you know, becoming godly, you, you could make the argument that this is just George. He hasn't become Saint George yet. Yes, he he does need to purify himself as he goes along. before it, This is fight. Georgie boy, the Red Cross Knight. Yes. So he's in the forest. We get to him in this lost woods, like from Zelda. But they then meet... Uh, a, a wicked monster called Edda in Edda's den. And as Sophie was pointing out, this does feel like a bit of a Dark Souls sort of thing. You have um, this and character... also, I, I, w- I wish to add that also my notes does say this is the Lost Woods from Legend of Zelda. It is the only way we can interface <laughs> with literature. And we have here the description of Edda which is by which he saw the ugly monster plain, half like a serpent horribly displayed, but the other half did woman's shape retain, most loathsome, filthy, foul, and full of vile disdain. And as she lay upon the dirty ground, a huge long tail, her den all overspread, it was in knots and many bots upwound, pointed with mortal sting. Of her there bred a thousand young ones, which she daily fed, sucking upon her poisonous dugs, each one of sundry shapes, yet all ill-favoured, soon as that uncouth light upon them shone, into her mouth they crept, and sudden all were gone. Now this is, if anyone thought we were being facetious when we were saying that this is sort of like Dark Souls, no, that is definitely how a Dark Souls boss will be introduced. Yeah, and... 
it, there will be like a weird little cutscene, and then as as the little thing ends, um, you know, the cave of error, queen of all like a thousand children and misunderstandings, and then the health bar shows up, and your shield is nothing. Your shield is nothing. You will die instantly. He nearly does die as well. It, it's sort with this in. Uh, we are spending a lot of time on Canto One because I think it's very important to the text that he goes to fight Edda, and he does sort of succeed in beating Edda. But it's, but you know, she does vomit on him. Her vomit full of books and papers was with loathly frogs and toads whose eyes did lack and creeping sorts in the weedy grass. So the Edda vomits on him, but it's sort of, which is sort of a Resident Evil attack when he, the zombie vomits on you at some point. But it is like a zombie film because yes, I've defeated the zombie. Ah, but you've also been bitten. Oh no, something's gonna, something bad's gonna happen now, because he has defeated Edda. But in the very next scene, uh, they get tricked by a, a wizard, so they haven't really defeated Edda. Yeah, and, that, and this yeah. is the kind of level that allegories work on. The psychology of a character never happens inside of their head. If you change all the names in this thing, you'd think, oh, St. George is a rather dull character. You have to remember that the entire book is his psychology. And I will, uh, I wish to point out, I don't understand why there was books in her, in her, um, in her throw up. Like I get the frogs and the, and the hooks and everything else, but paper. I'd say that the reason is that error spreads through writing that you 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 know uh, you know treatises on you know why we should give the Irish freedom. It's like oh that's an error, bad error. <laughs> so, I was going to say, are all the Catholics using their Gutenberg presses to spread all this misinformation? It's all fake news. Yeah, I feel <laughs> that at that point, the vomiting up paper that was him saying, okay, I really need to make it clear what I mean here. Hmm. <laughs> Wait. So he was a parchment man. <laughs> I will pretend I got that joke. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about the vellum. It's all about the vellum. It's all about the shellacking. Again, I will pretend I got any of that. So then It was actually our... a sophisticated joke. <laughs> it was. It was a surprisingly sophisticated joke about the fact that oh. we didn't use to write on paper. Oh, thank you. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Very well done, Sophie. As I said, he they've he's beaten Edda, but all of her children survive. Mmm, foreshadowing. And then he goes to see they they're going through the woods and they meet an old man, a seemingly kindly old man, but really this is an evil old wizard called Archimago. Which Archimago, I think that in some famous fantasy series, Arch Archmage is now a famous uh, term in fantasy fiction because of this character. But anyway. Yeah, no, Archmage is uh, all over the place. So so they have, they, we don't know what Archimago's motivation is for wanting to defeat St. George and his Lady Una. I think the idea is he's just evil, but he does want to des des destroy the St. George. He wants to separate. So Archimago has a plan. He's going to separate St. George from Lady Una. He's going to separate St. George from the truth. And he does this by going to the Lord of Dreams to give uh, St. George a wet dream, basically. Let me actually I'll read it out. It is thus well instructed to the... So this is told some spirits to give a naughty dream to St. George. Thus well instructed to their work they haste 
and coming where the night in slumber lay, and one upon his hardy head him placed, and made him dream of loves and lustful play, that nigh his manly heart did melt away, bathed in wanton bliss and wicked joy. Then seemed him his lady by him lay, and to him plained how that false-winged boy her chaste heart had subdued to learn Dame Pleasure's toy. So first of all, what happens here is that this, the naughty dream is sort of priming him for what's going to happen next, because Saint, because Archimago has made another set of spirits pretend to be Lady Una and some random guy. And these two spirits are having sex together. And so when um, St. George wakes up... Hmm? I, I wish to uh, correct that a little bit, uh, because according to my notes, at least according to my understanding of the notes, um, Imp 1 was the one that collected the dream, and Imp 2 was the one that looks like um, Una. And Imp 1's dream was meant to make uh, George have sex with Imp 2, but that didn't work. So Imp 1 and 2 go back to Archimago, and he's like, you fools, you imbeciles, you idiots. Um, and then he's like, all right, cool, 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 never mind. I, we can make this work. And turns Imp 1 into a lustful youth and keeps Imp 2 as Una's shape, puts them in bed, and then he rushes to George going, hey, hey, your, your girl's being a slut, man. And, um, you know, because the dream had made him go, is she though? Yeah, then the whole, oh no, she is, in fact, a hoary little slut. And that's why he leaves. So. Yes, thank you for that. With this book, because of how it's written, certain details can get lost in the dense foliage of writing. Uh, so, yes, please feel free to correct me on any points in this. <laughs> so the Red Cross Knight is scandalized. He is scandalized and he leaves Una immediately. He doesn't even say goodbye. He leaves the house immediately. And that is Canto 1. Any last comments on Canto 1? So yeah. This, uh, yeah, no, that's it. Other, that than, other than to point out that it, it, it's just convenient that whenever something bad is happening, suddenly we get a lot of names of Greek and Roman gods, are uh, Roman gods, and <laughs> let's connect the Roman gods with the Catholicism of later on because, you know, they're, they're all evil. Oh, yeah, no, there was that. Um, and also, for me, I was a little affronted at how, uh, in a Mobius, King of Dreams and Sleep was being, um, do the bidding of us, yeah, assumably nob nobody Archimago. And I'm just going, because Archimago doesn't even have a name. He's just, he's, he just has a title. Yeah, but um, the title is King of Wizards. Mm, like, it's not I, just, this is a wizard. This is the best of all wizards. Well, I think uh, <laughs> wizards rank lower on the hierarchy of beings. And the way that... Wait till we get to lucifer is. <laughs> oh, yeah. I actually lucifer. loved her. Luciferist. Lucifera. Lucifera. Yeah. No, I did like how, I think, if I remember correctly, with Morpheus... When they come into the dream, well, that's a when they come into the dream world. Morpheus is like sleeping, and then he then Archimedes says, "Wake up, do something for me." And then Morpheus just wakes up for a bit. Oh yes, fuck off! I let me do this for you. Then he goes back to sleep. 
So that's that's a character part. That's a that's a bit of niceness. You'd expect that in, let's say, a modern anime. Yeah. That? Oh, um, on that stanza's um, sentence, I have this man has a good Audible account. Oh, yes. Because uh, if I can find the the stanza. Uh, and more to lull him in his slumber soft, a trickling stream from high rock tumbling down, an ever-drizzling rain upon the loft, mixed with a murmuring wind, which like a sown of swarming bees did cast him in a swoon. So it's like, he has a lot of ambient music happening, man. Like, he's he has paid a for his... To calm. He, yeah, he has, he has a calm background noise subscription, and he's just using them all. I'm not sure, like, if bees are super calming, but yeah, no other noise, no people's troublous cries, as still I want to annoy the walled town, might they be heard, but careless quiet lies, wrapped in eternal silence fair from enemies. Like, so he's got a lot of white noise going on, he's determined to have his sleep, but you know, he gets woken up, and just like, this is not what my subscription was for. So yeah, um, I just thought that was great. Canto 2. Already, I, I feel that this, I, I mean, we talk about how interminable it is to, well, you talk about how interminable it is to read, but I feel that this is moving a lot faster than most modern fantasy novels. In a modern one, you'd expect that at the, I don't know, 12 page mark, we get some terrible thing about their childhoods and going into the past and psychology. But no, this just keeps on going. Something's happened. We're going to show what's happened next. So I, I do, I mean, this. Uh, when you remove the language, you just think of the plot points, it is, does move at quite a clip, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You keep I, telling yourself that. I kind of agree, Um, actually. Um, sorry, Greg. Um, really, in 25 stanzas, we had 10% of it talking about trees. <laughs> I mean, okay, you're not wrong. But, um, you know, in the first stanza alone, we have killed a gorgon manticore thing we have found a wizard who has immediately done some shenanigans and the and the knight has you know fucked off like that's that's three big major plot points and i would say um compared to later cantos that's definitely more plot progression yeah okay yeah i'll 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 take it back and i'll agree with you there in terms of comparing it to later cantos, there is a bit that's happened here. Yeah, no. So in that sense, um, cantos, Canto One definitely has a good amount of progress happening. It's it's from here that it sort of becomes a bit of a slog. I think the, the dwarf does go with Saint George. I think maybe yeah. there's a comment, comment that common sense uh, sometimes can accompany you poorly, can lead you wrong, or maybe he still has some good in him. Maybe. I'm not sure. Uh, but now, it's only now, I think, in 57, uh, so in stanza 11. Okay, so so St. George himself, you would have deemed him to be. So you, so this is the first time you get the hint of an explicit mention that this is St. George. Even here, it's not an explicit mention, but it's saying you would have deemed him to be St. George, but he's not yet St. George. Don't worry, this is his origin story. He's not yet Spider-Man. He's not yet Batman. But he's going to be. 
<laughs> Maybe that's the reason why he keeps it secret. Yes, this is Bruce Wayne, but he's not yet Batman. This is Batman Begins. And as he is going through, he's running away, he's walking through. Uh, so being so, Okay, so what's happened here is that, as I said, this is an allegory, quite direct in what's happening. All the psychology happens outside his head. So St. George, he has lost faith in Una, and so he comes across a knight called Sans Foi. So without a guy who in French is just named without faith. So that, that is the kind of level we're talking here. And so he meets Sans Foi and Duessa, a woman called Duessa. So, you know, Una means one and also truth. Duessa means double face two, but also lies. Duessa, who in the end starts to call herself Fidessa, so faithfulness. But so, you know, she is such a liar. She calls herself faithful. So he means... Um, Actually, she introduces herself as Fidessa um, and is later revealed to that she is Duessa. Uh, yes, it is. Lots of names in this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Also, fucking Sans Foy, eldest of brothers Sans Loy and Sans Joy. And I, I just, mm, as soon as I saw those names, I thought, okay, this is a Disney level of naming characters. Oh yeah, th- this is this is a Pilgrim's Progress. Mm. I remember there was a this may be apocryphal, but there was you know those the, those Games Workshop Warhammer things. They did a module set in a Germany inspired place, uh, but when the German translators got back to them, they based the German translator says, "Look, I know that it sounds very exotic in English, but when you're naming characters, can you not just name the hero hero in German and the villain villain in German?" It doesn't sound exotic to us. Yeah, this comes straight from the Greek and the Roman because you had like the Roman goddess Discordia. The, the, the problem is that back then those were the characters that created the words. Here, it's the words that create the characters, which just doesn't have the same effect. That's a really nice way of spinning it. I like that. But yeah, um, another example, Darth Vader, you know, Dark Father. So the Germans were like, okay, cool, we know the plot twist. And Tangled... Before anyone emails, there's no source for that claim. We don't know whether George Lucas intended that or not, so I don't want any emails. Yes. But in Disney's Tangled, there's two um, bad boys, um, and the one that has an eye patch, his name is Patchy Stabbington. and and the one and the other one, I thought I genuinely thought like um, that was just you know a short for Patrick. So you know Patrick Stabbington. At least you know he has a real name for the first half. No, his uh, his brother's name is Sideburns Stabbington. So yeah, um, Sans Foy, Sans Loy, Sans Joy. Rubbish names. What's Loy anyway? Loyalty. Law. Law. There. So the the three brothers Sans. So just I, I'll just let you know that at least in modern French, these are called Sans Foi, Sans Roi, and Sans Joie. So the O I or O Y is pronounced as a Wa sound. So I I just want again emailers. I've told Sophie; she now knows. Don't email. <laughs> but moving on. So St. George is coming into the forest and Sans Hua and Duessa, they appear to be having sex in the middle of a forest. I'll get the exact line. 
I, when I again, when I I will occasionally throughout this say characters had sex, characters masturbated, characters did these things. Know that the book is never going to tell you that outright. This is a work of good literature, of respectable literature. It's going to be very, the subtext is going to be incredibly clear, though. Uh, <laughs> okay, he had a fair companion of his way, a goodly lady clad in scarlet red, puffed with gold and pearl of rich array, and like a Persian mitre on her head, she wore with crowns and ouches garnished, the which her lavish lovers to her gave. Her wanton palfrey all was overspread with tinsel trappings woven like a wave, whose bridle rung with golden bells and bosses brave. With fair disport and courting dalliance, she entertained her lover all the way. So she entertained her lover all the way. I think we know what that means. Mm. Yeah, somehow missed that. <laughs> I there was a. Uh, there was a lecture series on the Fairy Queen, and the lecturer there—it's—I'll uh, put the link in the description. I don't—I can't find it on his website because it's very difficult to navigate. But he, one of the things he was talking about how in these kinds of allegories, he needs to remind his undergraduates that yes, certain things are metaphors for sex, but you also must remember the sex is a metaphor for something else. It, don't just stop at the sex. He needs to hide the sex because that's polite. But no, what does the sex mean after this point? So, Sophie, what does the sex mean here? Uh, duplicity? Yes, okay. Very good. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, as we were, so, as I was saying before, St. George, he has lost faith in Duessa, and so he is fighting a guy called Sansfois. And he does fight and defeat Sansfois. But the person he gives his new faith to is a, what we would nowadays call a lying bitch called Duessa, who calls herself Fidesa. And uh, this is just a point. I, not for the last time in this book is someone's blood called purple. Was this a common color of blood in the Renaissance, purple blood? Well, I, I have to assume it's connected to the idea of these being royal. Oh, okay. But this guy is meant to be a Sadazan. So does even this Sadazan have uh, purple blood, royal blood? I mean, even pagans have, have kings. Yes. Mm. <laughs> so does Wait, anyone have I... any comments on this fight or any other comments on this? Or, uh, Well, I will say, uh, like, she goads him into fighting. That is what I found a little unusual. She is certainly a person who as her name suggests. She is duplicitous. She, in, later on, you know, she, she has seemingly allied herself to uh, St. George, but then she go, when saint Joie comes in, she goes to him and says, oh no, fight him, fight him, go on, fight him. And then when a giant ogre called o- Ogre-yo or something like that, she goes, she goes, like yes, she goes to um, ally herself with that giant ogre. So as, an, as again, when you know the character's name, you know what they're going to do. She is Duessa. She will be duplicitous. For a duplicitous character, she is a very aggressive and um, outgoing duplicitous character. Because um, usually duplicitous characters tend to, you know, kind of play both sides. Um, kind of, So the Iago of Othello, where they sort of go from one party to the other, just whispering in their ear, 
and sort of basically sticking to the background and letting things play out while she's more of a sans foy. Why, um, that man, I don't think you're up to snuff. Why don't you fight him for me? And they do. It goes badly for her. Or maybe, you know, she was sick of Sans Foy. So maybe that was her ploy all along. And then she's like, I was an empress. I was betrothed to a prince, but he died and I am now a virgin widow. And yeah, she does give this rather sob story of herself. It's a very classic, you know, white woman Karen move of, you know, um, instigates a fight and then she like lets out the tears um to basically put herself into like a victim's role to play up sympathy um but yeah so in that sense i feel she is quite aggressive and um assertive kind of duplicitous character which i like in a villainess and then we have how so they go so now saint george has been allied with Juessa. Uh, and then he goes to a forest and he meets a tree, a tree who is actually a man. And the tree says, oh no, Juessa is an awful person. I'm here because of Juessa. So he gets a warning. He doesn't take this warning, St. George doesn't. He, but he St. goes George on. George doesn't know that is Juessa. Okay, yes, that is the idea. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will note that... Um, so it turns out that Duessa, she seems like a lovely, beautiful woman, but actually she is an old hag. And Spencer does take great joy in depicting her as an old, evil hag. When, when later on in the story, when she's defeated, he really takes some joy in it. But here he says something like, her nether parts misshapen, monstrous, were hidden water. Now that is, uh, talking about your nether parts being misshapen and monstrous, this he 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 does take joy in describing how you know disgusting certain things are, which in this part sort of just becomes oh let's laugh at a hideous old woman sort of thing. Yeah, and I would actually like to point out um, that like he basically says, "Ah, oh, Duessa was so gross and so old," and um, in stanza XL one, which I think is forty one, like her nether regions was underwater. But I knew, I knew it was going to be so gross. XL1, yeah. Her nether parts, misshapen monstrous, were hid in water that I could not see. But they did seem more foul and hideous than woman-shaped man would believe to be. So So it's like, you know what, I didn't see how ugly the rest of her was, but I bet it was bad. I'm gonna leave it to your imaginations, reader. Cause as Calvin and Hobbes, and the noodle incident that is alluded to, the writers were like, hey, the, the readers thought of more interesting noodle incidents than we ever could. So Readers can think of more interesting vaginas than I can. Yeah, yeah we'll leave you thinking of your own gross vaginas. Canto three. Canto three. We go back to Una. Going back to Una. Who takes a lion as a guardian. She does not ride it. 
He does not get on the line in Rise, which is disappointing. We are not yet at the stage of fantasy fiction where we have these unusual mounts. We're going to need to wait some time for that. But she does get a lion companion. Was anyone else disappointed she didn't ride her lion? No, but I, I, it did cross my mind that I wonder if we're going to get a wardrobe, having just received a lion and a witch. I do imagine that C.S. Lewis would have loved this book. Either that, or could we have like a scarecrow? Like we've got a wooden man, almost like a tin man. We, we could get something happening there. Um, but no, what do you expect? It's a whole big thing about England. Of course there's going to be a bloody lion. <laughs> I, and also, like, it kind of makes... Um, it, there is the shepherd's side of Christianity and the the crusade side of Christianity, like both land and lion sort of existing. Um, well, yeah, I am also very sad that she didn't write it because, you know, again... As you say, Greg, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe vibes. And then, so in this chapter, Una comes to a house owned by a woman called Abessa. Uh, and her, her mother is a woman called Korcheka, who seems to be, and they have a patriarch called Kirkrapin. Now, with the, her Abessa, this is like, th- th- there is quite a strong Catholic element uh, to this house uh, with a so a Bessa like a, an abbey uh, and also a patriarch called Kirk Rapine. So Kirk means church, Rapine means stealing. So a guy who goes into churches and steals or as a church steals uh, and also a blind mother who's always saying her paternosters over her um, prayer beads. So there is, this does seem to be a uh, a representation of Catholicism which, given that Una is meant to represent truth, uh, maybe the idea is that for a very brief period of time, truth had to stay with the Catholic Church. But don't worry, she had to leave very quickly as well. I think maybe that's the purpose of this scene, which, like a lot of scenes in this book, never is never mentioned again, that she stayed here. Uh, any, other, any thoughts on the significance of this one-off scene? Um. Yeah, I always felt this scene was very much a just a let, let's take a dig at the church for a second and point out that the church is blind and happy to take money from thieves and it isn't of the nobility worthwhile writing epic adventures about. Okay, I'm reading this and it does seem to be so this Kirk Rapine, he goes and steals things from churches or he steals for the church. and But he says that um, so, and all that he by right or wrong could find unto this house he brought and did bestow upon the daughter of this woman blind, Abessa, daughter of Korcheka, slow, with whom he whoredom you. So, really trying to dig in that, oh no, this is like a bad family situation. You don't want to be part of this house. You don't want to be a Catholic. Yeah. But fortunately or unfortunately, the lion kills Kirkrapi. And at the end, you know, forgive, I, I may have, you know, misread something or read over something but it does seem like you know that the lion kills Kirk Rapine uh Una she's still asleep she wakes up and then she just leaves she doesn't say goodbye she doesn't know anything's gone wrong she's not trying to escape persecution but she just sort of gets up and goes without saying goodbye to the people who've let her stay in their house uh that just seems impolite to me she doesn't know these are bad people yet yeah no that was that was definitely strange to me too and the two wake up, 
you know, Abessa and the other one wake up and say, oh, no, Kirkrapine, no. And he just, you know, rides ahead to the next town and basically talks shit about Una. And you know what? They kind of deserve, they're allowed to do that. Una did, Una's pet just did straight up murder their, their bread dispenser. Yeah. Their moneymaker. Yeah, it did. It's hard to read this and see Una in the in a good light. You have mind. you have to be sort of you, you, you have to be really you have to start from a position of hating the Catholics. Yeah, <laughs> you you really do. You have to start in a position of no, these are a symbol about evil people that got what was coming to them. Um, it isn't really written in that way though. Yeah, this this entire scene. I mean, apart from the very end of it, this entire canto does seem like it could be removed because. Even the lion, you know, you think, oh, she has a new ally. But no, the lion's killed at the end of this canto. And then we have Archimago appearing out of nowhere, this time dressed like St. George, pretending to be St. George and going to Una's help. Ah, but who's coming next? Sans who sees Archimago dressed as St. George and starts attacking this old man. She doesn't get to say that maybe this is maybe like an attempt at comedy or something, like a, sort of like in a farce. The deception undoes itself. Mm, oh, yeah, no, there has been more than once when I have just written comedy with like three question marks. I, I just couldn't help but think that they were a little bit absurd. This part, um, I might have misread it. So Sansloy sees the cross. It's like, brother killer, behold! And Archimago was not up to par. Nick Stanza's sentence is, suck it, nerd. And after that, mercy. And then, oh shit, did I just kill an old man? Archimago, the fuck, my friend? So do do unto others what you have done to yourself. Um, basically, you know, because he transformed into goodness, so to speak, he was slain in his place aha sucker but yeah no um so did did akimago like survive and leave or or did yeah, he I, I read it as akimado survives yes he does come back at the very end trying to disrupt the celebrations yeah i was very surprised by that i was like oh wow i, I yeah, genuinely so, thought he died in this in yeah, this doesn't, part it doesn't say he leaves him lying there yeah, I thought he yeah. left them lying there dead. Yeah, no, I, I read it as he left him, like, beaten but not dead. Yeah, yes, the greatest trick the devil ever... The greatest trick the devil... Fuck it, hell. <laughs> the, <laughs> the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was pretending to be dead on the ground. Yes. That, that was worth it. Uh... Got there. But yeah, yeah, so Archimago, he sort of put out of commission for a bit. And he's on the ground. But now, unfortunately, Una is in sans um protection, which in the very next canto, I do believe turns out, no, not in the next cantos, in one of the later cantos, it turns out this isn't very much protection because he does try to rape her, which as you'd expect from a guy called Without Law, uh, yeah. he doesn't have much restraint. He, he's the chaotic. The chaotic <laughs> evil. So this, maybe not even chaotic evil, just chaotic neutral. Yes, all of the. When it comes to the Sans brothers, they do seem to all be acting in good faith. 
they have a woman they like and they try to do they, they one of the you know i was talking about how arkamaga the reason he does these things is because he's evil these other knights they seem to just be you know doing knight things it's just that they do them for evil people so like the when they're serving Duessa and so they do evil things for her, but they do like Duessa and they're trying to do things for Duessa. So these are all just knights who are acting in good faith. Uh, it's just that the lady or the ideals they serve are not that good. That's yeah, the of- only the only thing that makes them bad is that they are just pagan. That's it. Yes, that yes, that that may be a, a point. Yes, yes, these 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 pagans they may be very good people, but you must remember they serve the wrong ideals. And they are damned by association, which is pretty shit. Canto four. And here we come to Lucifera. I wonder what she will be. I wonder what the name Lucifera implies here. They come to the Palace of Pride, and quite helpfully, and we, we talk about how impenetrable this book is. But at various points, and generally at the start of the canto, Spencer will give these these sort of previously on segments. Young knight, whatever that dost arms profess, and through long labours huntest after fame, beware of fraud, beware of fickleness, in choice and change of thy dear loved dame, lest thou of her believe too likely blame, and rash misweening do thy heart remove. For unto knight there is no greater shame than lightness and inconstancy in love, that doth his red cross knights in sample plainly prove, who after that he had fair Una lorn, through light misdeeming of her loyalty, and false Duessa in her stead had borne, called Fides, and so supposed to be. Long with her he trapped. So here he's he, he is giving you a previously on segment. So don't worry if you've forgotten what's happened beforehand. Let me I'm gonna tell you what's happened now. But I'd say this is fairly modern, isn't it? I guess it is, yeah. I can't I don't it's think like when, we've experienced it in any of the other stuff we've read so far. Yes, it's like when I'm reading classical Chinese novels. And at the end of every chapter, they will do this thing where it's like, if you want to find out what happened next, tune in for the next chapter. So <laughs> that, that, this happens in like the Romance of the Three King, Kingdoms, the Regime of the Red Chamber, the... the um, Ro- well, that, that's uh, because Monty. they're all serialized fiction, aren't they? But yeah, that, it's one of those things you don't expect that to happen. Um, I think the modern translation of uh, of Romance of the Three Kingdoms, they really do lean into that. They say, yes, this does sound like a TV show at the end of it. If you want to find out what happened to Cao Cao, you must read the next chapter. And I think they even put an exclamation mark there. But uh, I adore that it's basically proto-Dragon Ball. Again, linking it all back into uh, to anime. Of course. I live in the land of anime, literally, so I, I have to. It's and to our long. audience, Sophie is half Japanese, so she's only half weeb. The white <laughs> But yeah, um, I rather enjoyed Kanto 4, mostly because it was just a series of scenes. Nothing Kanto- happened. Certainly nothing happens. Kanto 4 has that... So I'll just give a brief setup what happened here. So Duessa... Uh, and uh, St. George, they come to the sinful house of pride, which is a place, as you can expect from pride, from evil pride, it has a lovely front. It looks amazing, but behind it, everything is decrepit and and falling apart. And it's run by Lucifera, who is the embodiment of pride. 
And this, as the embodiment of pride, she is the queen of all the other deadly sins. I suppose the idea is that it is only by being prideful and thinking you know better than God that you will sin to begin with. Uh, but this canto uh, has one of those uh, topoys, one of those tropes of epic poetry that modern readers really hate. It's called the epic catalogue or the tachoscopia. It's like that point in the Iliad where there, Helen is on the top of the wall and saying, oh, that ship over there has such and such, that ship over there has such and such, that ship over there has such and such, or in uh, Paradise Lost, where they're saying, and this fallen angel is called such and such, this fallen angel, and they will go on for paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs explaining to you who these people are, these people who you'll never see again. Modern readers hate this. Uh, how did you, in this one, we get that for the seven deadly sins? And at least for me, I found that this worked a bit better because I, I, I think the reason for this is that in like the Iliad, I don't know who these soldiers are. I don't know who these other generals are. They have no meaning for me. In Paradise Lost, I don't know who these other angels are. They mean nothing for me. But I do know what the seven deadly sins are. So describing them at length means something to me. The, so did you feel that this epic catalogue worked better or do you like epic catalogues maybe? It, it's weird for, for me. I, I get what you're saying. I don't think it's made better or worse by knowing them. Um, I think I think this works better than a lot of other examples. I'm not entirely sure why though. It, for some reason it made me think of Faust. I agree. I mean, yes, no, Faust, he also met a bunch of um, the embodiments of the seven yeah, deadly sins. but I think what Faust does better is better represents them in your mind as an image. I'd say that how it represents them will be very much dependent on how good the costuming is. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. But that said, this is this is half decent. Like I, I didn't actually have too too much to criticize in how it's done in this canto. I actually really enjoyed it. Um like the last three cantos had kind of primed me into thinking of these monsters like video game characters. So like um, having these little characteristics that I could cobble into my mind into like 36-bit pixels was great fun for me. Um, although I will admit... I the like the idea poem... that Japanese video game designers would treat a book like this as a monster manual. Oh, hundred percent. They would definitely do that. I, I would, I would make a game just based on this. It would be all style RPG. It'll be great. No one will love it. <laughs> but yeah, from it's from like stanza eighteen onwards that they start talking about idleness. I do at stanza twenty write, oh fuck, it's still about idleness. And finally at twenty one, it's gluttony. At twenty four, it's literary. So. It took me a bit to go, okay, cool. Um, they're going to do a, a few standards per person. But each stanza was like actually quite beautifully um, crafted. And I was a little bit excited to see each what each person would be riding. Because, you know, idleness is wearing, is riding a donkey. Okay, cool. Gluttony yeah. is, where, is riding a swine. Excellent. Makes perfect sense. Lustful literary, a bearded goat. Of course. <laughs> Very good character design, a hundred percent. And it just made me go, what are the what are the other three riding? Avarice is a camel. 
And I'm just like, okay, a choice. Roth is riding, not, no, actually not Roth. Envy is what riding a wolf. And Roth is riding a lion. And I'm just going, okay. I'm surprised that they used a lion for, as a mount for a sin, considering the previous use of a lion to, you know, defend Una, the truth, the one true god even but you know um again and i was also thinking these would make such great good bosses for <laughs> for souls games i and, want someone um, to smuggle a japanese translation of this onto uh, miyazaki's desk at fromsoft ah uh, uh, yeah and stanza 34 literally wrote all of these great uh, final fantasy or souls game bosses um, I'm a little sad that Satan's been uh, downgraded to the coachman. But yeah, no, I rather enjoyed this because, you know, um, they're not just characters, they're ideals. So seeing these um, ideals and what we should turn away from, you know, hooks and um, bile and all that gross stuff was fun to read. And, I'm, and I was, it, it was a little bit annoying that like there was like, a very small pop plot point snuck in at the very end, but as a pastiche, it was quite nice to read. So, Sophie, who did it better? The Fairy Queen or Full Metal Alchemist? <laughs> ah, shit. Imagery? This. Full Metal Alchemist did the plot much better. Okay. And before we, before we move on, I, just, I desperately want to mention that Pride's Palace has a porter called Malvenu, which the French word for welcome is bienvenu. So this guy is literally just called bad cum, which... Have a I bad day. Yes, that is... Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, that is just... No one will put that in a book these days. That no. is... That, I mean, only in a comedy. I did think, Malvenu, is that bad house? But yeah, I forgot French uh, speaks different, so yeah. Welcome to the bad house. I am the steward of the bad house, Malvenu. This used to be a fun house, but now it's oh. full of creepy clowns. Is that a song? <laughs> yeah, that is a, yeah. a song by Pink. So we have a podcast, Pink and Dark Souls. <laughs> I we we try to tie in classic literature to modern things that modern kids like. <laughs> Do kids still like pink? I don't know. I was about, I was fearfully about to ask that. <laughs> it's like, does pink, is pink still relevant to young people? She's definitely relevant to, to me. By the next episode, we should all have listened to Billie Eilish's new album, so we have some good new references to make. Thank you very much, but I've already heard it. I might be old, but I, I, I'm almost with it. I'm as close to with it as I was as a child. How, how about we say it that way? I, I might not like it myself, but I know what people like. Uh, did, did you know Girl? that Gangnam Style is making a comeback? Wow. Oh, it's retro now. Yeah, on, on TikTok. See, I, I know things. Oh. I, I'm, oh. I'm... <laughs> All I know of Billy Eilish is uh, Lucifer is the bad guy. Oh, fuck you, Sophie. I was going to do that. I, I heard a <laughs> song recently that sampled a, a retro song from the 90s. And that makes me very sad that the 90s are now retro enough to sample their songs. But we have songs, uh, we, no, we have, so St. George is in the Palace of Pride. You 
this is quite clearly meant to be a, a representation of what's going on in his head. He was prideful enough to think he knew better than Una. He left Una, so he's already on the first step towards other sins. But even now, he is sort of holding himself back. He knows that something is a bit wrong. So they're in the Palace of Pride, and so the foul duessa next unto the chair of Plowed Lucifera as one of the train. But that good knight would not so nigh repair himself estranging from their joyance vain, whose fellowship seemed far unfit for warlike swain. So St. George is thinking, yeah, I, I won't take part in this. There's some, maybe he's not saying there's something wrong with this, but he's sort of holding himself back for the moment. He's not fully corrupted yet. And this is, uh, we mentioned how Duessa is the kind of person who says, oh yes, you go, go, go and fight him, go and fight him. She, when it turns out that Sans Joie is in, so another one of Sans Joie's uh, brothers, Sans Joie, so without joy, uh, without joy, now she basically eggs on Sans Joie, go on, go on, fight St. George. And so now we have another piece of symbolism. We have uh, so St. George has already committed a sin. He has abandoned truth. He has pledged his faith, his new faith to an evil woman. Now he is going to fight the embodiment of lost joy. Will his sinfulness lead him to lost joy? Uh, in the next canto, we're going to, re we're going to discover the answer to that. Tune in next time. We're going to find the answer to that. Um, I just wanted to say uh, in stanza 39, my note the dwarf is still there. That's all. Yes. That's all I wanted to add. This is like the rule of threes in cinema. You need to first you introduce it, then you remind the reader, and then it will have some significance. Yep, apparently. Canto five. We get right into the battle with St. George and Saint-Joie. St. George manages to beat Saint-Joie, maybe implying that this is the first stage of sin, where, yes, he has managed to take some happiness in this, some joy in this, but you know, later on things are going to turn very bad for him, but he's managed to defeat Saint-Joie. And he is, in the middle of, <laughs> he is in the middle of sin's kingdom, fighting against the death of happiness. Again, this is an allegory. Everything is quite clear what's going on. But there is one point, anyone, oh no, just one point I want to make about this actual battle because and I, I will say for myself that I do think that Spencer writes these fight scenes relatively well. I, uh, I find that they are more, I mean, after reading a lot of Shakespeare, where because of stage directions, the really the only bit of fight description is square brackets, they fight. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's a play. Yes. That actually reading the fight scenes in this, they are good. They do work as fight scenes. Anyone disagree? Anyone agree? I yeah. don't disagree. Yeah, no, the fight scenes are good. They drag a bit, but you know, as dragons fight griffins, this is epic. Yes. Like in terms of writing in general, I, I I I do think Spencer's a good writer. I just don't think he's a great storyteller. Or more to the point, 
I think he could have been a great writer and a storyteller, but he was too obsessed with the politics and the sucking up and the over-the-top metaphor, for want of a better word. If this if this was a tale about an if he was writing like really lighthearted tales about knights killing monsters, I think we'd have something really entertaining to read. Well, I find that it is because of this sort of sheen of meaning that it's one of those things where in your big blockbuster movie you put in that tiny bit of themes into it just so that some of the audience can think, ah, this isn't this is not a complete waste of my time. I am thinking of something. Yeah, yeah, I, I do th- think these moments of blockbuster action, as you could call it, where Spencer's at his best. And th- there is one point in it, one point I want to make where, um, so they're fighting each other, St. George and Saint-Joie, and then there's part where it says, um, so the false Jewessa, thine the shield and I and all. Now, it's not clear who she's saying this to, which I do believe is in her character, that she's saying this in general, and each knight thinks she's saying it to them. Uh, so that is just another part of her character, that she is on both sides in this single line. Mm-hmm. I would just like to point out, because I think I am comedic genius, for San- stanza um, 10, I have written, Sans Joy adds a uh, rage check to his stats. Yes, he is... <laughs> You you can clearly see the the lineage to modern fantasy, and the the fight does it does get quite gory at certain points, where it says um, the cruel steel so greedily doth bite and tender flesh that streams of blood down flow with which the arms that erst so bright did show into a pure vermilion now are die a vermilion again purple blood, yeah. great ruth in all the gazers heart nor the gazer's hearts did grow, seeing the gored wounds to gape so wide that victory they dare not wish to either side. Now that is just, I, 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 that's sort of Tarantino sort of stuff there. <laughs> mm. well, were you surprised by just how gory it was? Um, uh, yay and nay. Like I was diff- like from Canto 1, I was surprised by, you know, the sudden appearance of a Souls game boss. So that sort of primed me th- to, into thinking, okay, this is this is old fantasy, but it's old fantasy that that also happens to be metal. This Sometimes, is definitely a heavy metal album cover. This is a heavy metal poem. Oh, that there was what was that um, Jack Black um, double fine game where it was just it's a fantasy strategy game set in this amalgamation of heavy metal album covers. I have Where? no idea, but I want to play <laughs> it. Let me check. It's it's some so Jack Black Heavy Metal Game. It is called Brutal Legend. So that that the U has an umlaut on it. Brutal oh. Legend. Wow, and and like the character looks like Jack Black. Oh, this I mean, is amazing. He plays a roadie who is uh, a, a roadie who is sick and tired of being a roadie for like shitty teen pop bands, but he gets sucked in to the world of uh, heavy metal album covers. There was uh, some 
annoyance on the player base that they were promised sort of an action game. You're in this thing and you start bashing people over the head, but it did turn out to be more of a strategy game. Yes, I mean, the images it. are great. But that's enough Jack Black for today. <laughs> Never ask... enough Jack Black for every day. So St. George beats down saint Joie. But Duessa literally goes down into hell to get saint Joie revived. I, this, this, I think this shows a certain level of loyalty on Duessa's part that I was not expecting. Do they give... I, I may have missed her actual motivation for doing this, but why, you know, why doesn't she just stick with the winner? Oh, Is she just motivated by evil? Maybe she actually gave a shit about uh, Sans Joie. At the moment, it does just seem like Duessa did this out of the goodness of her own heart. She gets nothing for it. She just brings him back to life. Yeah, it it, it seems kind for some reason. But that, that that's the whole thing about Duessa is that she's all over the place. She has no consistency. She's chaotic. She's neutral. A wild, yeah, wild card. But then the the dwarf inside of the castle does, so it says, For on a day his wedded dwarf had spied, where in a dungeon deep huge numbers lay of caitive wretched thralls that wailed night and day. And so the dwarf goes on and tells St. George, you know, there are people keep being kept prisoner here. And St. George says, oh, I, I better run away. And so he runs away, leaving Duessa behind him. So he sort of even lost a bit of faithfulness towards her at this point. Uh, but he's running away. And this is sort of the false victory in screenwriting terms. He thinks he's won. He thinks he's escaped Pride, but no, it's going to happen next. Mm. He's going to meet Pride again in a different form. But that's for next chapter. Any last comments? Oh, just that huge list in those final stanzas. Yeah, um, all the victims of Pride. And Stout Scipio and Hannibal and... Caesar and Pompeii and Antonius <laughs> and Nimrod. It is with a lot of this, we have to accept that this is just the kind of thing that readers at the time liked. These long lists that let them say, "Oh, I recognize that. I recognize that too." This is they did like that. I mean, they do. The writers do it so much that I have to assume that people liked it. Yeah, but it's one of those things where a lot of a lot of old books would not make it through like one of those, you know, modern, here's 10 tips for your writing thing. Uh, <laughs> a lot of those 10 tips for your writing thing. They live in a world where nothing was written before 1950. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Canto 6. We return. Fair Una. So we're going back to Fair Una, and then Una is still in the captivity of Sans Loi, so without law, and I gave it a foreshadowing before, where Sans Loi attempts to court her, attempts to get her the, the honest way, um, when she does not seem to yield to that, he become. so it says here, so when he saw his flattering arts to fail, and subtle engines bet from battery with greedy horse and the fort assail, whereof he ween possessed soon to be, and win rich spoil of ransacked chastity. 
So he's trying, this is quite, it's quite clear what he's trying to do. I do like here that to this, the idea of courtship being like besieging a castle, that the woman is a besieged castle and the male lover he is besieging. This was a conventional image of courtship, rather violent image, but a conventional image of courtship. But in this one, it, they, he takes that conventional image of courtship and makes it, no, this is violent. This is rape. I, I, I'm not sure if there's any deeper meaning there, but I do like, but I do like him sort of revivifying this rather conventional image. I don't think it's an image that has ever gone out of fashion, though, has it? You know, lover's war, that sort of thing. Well, yeah, lover's war, you conquer. Yes. Your, your partner. I, I don't think there's ever been a time where it hasn't been in fashion. Even now, when we look at how problematic the metaphor is, it doesn't seem to be going away. But so, so you know, he's trying to rape her. He doesn't succeed because just in time, a forest full of wood creatures. Uh, we have satyrs, and I forget the other thing, but there are various different kinds of these sort of Greekish Hellenic sort of satyr-like oh. creatures come up to save her. Yeah, fawns. Getting, getting real Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe now, aren't we? This is definitely a really fucking Disney scene, isn't it? Uh-huh. It's, it's straight out of um, Snow White. Yeah, oh, so and here's one part. Their, their heart she gets by their humble guise and yields her to extremity of time. So from the ground she fearless off arise and walketh forth without suspect of crime. They all as glad as birds of joyous prime. Thence lead her forth about her dancing round, shouting and singing all a shepherd's rhyme. Now that is definitely a part in a Disney film. The forest creatures singing and dancing around her. They kiss her feet, don't they? Yeah. They do kiss her feet and fawn on her with countenance fain. Just, wonder... just before that stanza. And so I wonder, like nowadays we know, you know, satyrs as, you know, these horny headed things, these, uh, you know, very virile creatures. And I wonder how sinister is this meant to be from a mm. Renaissance point of view? Because, I mean, they, they do come to her rescue. And later on, it does seem that, you know, she, she is sort of in a gilded cage with them. But I wonder just what we're meant to get from this. Um, in, in the notes of my edition, which is the Penguin edition, it does say that in the Renaissance, these satyrs and creatures alike, they were considered as, quote, lustful, often in a rather benevolent manner. I have well, no idea what that with means. Dionysus, so... Yeah, yeah. I, I do think it's all, all supposed to be about sensuality as compared to rape. <laughs> you can't it, assume they're good people in this telling of the story, but it's based only on the fact that whenever... Spencer has brought up other of the ancient gods and beings. They've all been against the good and honest St. George, you know. So we, we have to assume simply by the fact that they are from this ancient mythology that they're not supposed to be seen as good guys. I mean, they, at this point, they do seem to just be more of a heavy inconvenience to her. Yeah, it's sort of, as I said, a gilded cage sort of situation. It's like th- th- this is what happens when you get involved with these aspects of your life. You get distracted and you get caught up in sexuality and sensuality, and you're not on the right path because of that. But on the point of 
you know, we were mentioning the sort of uh, anti-Irish sentiment that certain parts of this book have. That there is a part where she is saying, and now, no, no, so um, so Una is in the forest, and so she is in strange habiliment teaching the satyrs which sat around true sacred lore, which from her sweet lips did redound. Now this, now this does seem like you know the image of the civilized woman teaching the savages true true thoughts and that sort of thing, civilizing them. It maybe that is you know in the light of. Spencer's views of how we should treat the Irish, this does feed into that. But, you know, she is literally teaching beast men true sacred law. Uh, or am I reading too deeply into it? Uh, I don't know, because it, they then say that they make her like an image of idolatries. So I, I don't think she's ever supposed to be seen as the good person either. When it comes When it comes to Una, I would say that, you know, given... I think that her own morality can never be in question, given just what she is meant to represent. Uh, I think maybe that the fact that they make her a subject of idolatries means that they are not quite able to appreciate her properly. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's what I'm meaning. Is that in, in this in this part of the story, Una isn't being respected the way she should be respected, and she herself is caught up in the wrong sort of world. Really. I, that that's how that's how I got it to mean, and that's why it's a it a fortuned a noble knight to find her. Yeah, but... yeah. Because um, for stanza nineteen, my uh, thing is she stayed a while. There's a does a little cult, and um, for me, I think she was doing her best to try and get through to the satyrs to stop being pagans, and they're like. So yeah, we gotta worship the one god, right? We worship you, lady, because you know you're telling us what to do. Um, a little bit like um when Moses fucks off for a bit and gets the Ten Commandments, and then while he's gone, they start worshiping worshiping a golden calf. So it's like they're trying to do the right thing, but they're just doing it poorly. Yeah, and they say like she tries to hold them back from this, um, but when their bootless zeal she did restrain from her own worship. They her ass would worship Fain. Yeah, she's like, I she she almost feels too nice. It's like she's she's being too nice. It's like, no, I'm no. It's I know you're trying your best, but this isn't quite what I'm. Okay, I'm gonna leave now. This isn't working. At least that's how that's the kind of vibe I got from this canto. Yeah. To her rescue comes a a half human, half satyr called Satyrain. I'd say that quite a lot of this book, uh, it may seem like we're going very quick. It may seem like not a lot is being said in some of these cantos. Just so you know that for every plot point we give you, there is going to be like 10 stanzas of backstory for how it happened. So Saturn, we get his entire family history, his personal history up until the point where he comes up to this point. But what you need to know listener, is that Saturain comes and saves Una from the grasp of all the satyrs. Yes, despite not being a, um, what, what's the word? It's, it's like this guy is the folk hero rather than the knightly hero, even though he's called a knight. Like, he doesn't have that nobility about him. So in what sense, really? He is just more down to earth, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Um, which... Knowing Spencer, I'm not entirely sure he's saying is a good thing. I, I can't tell. When it comes to 
these old books, it's always difficult to pick up which parts are meant to be funny and which parts aren't. Yeah. Uh, so we have... I would so say, like, from stanzas, stanzas 20 to 30, it's just blank, except for new uh, characters, question mark, question mark. I'm so confused. Is this person, like, Hercules? I, I kind of read him more like an English Tarzan. That he got all his skills from fighting animals, and he's an English had Tarzan. Because I say English Tarzan. Tarzan was English. <laughs> yes, um, but more that he grew up in the English forest. When it comes to this, you know, uh, this is this all takes place in Fairyland, and I wonder what exactly you know, is there any deep meaning about what this place is meant to be. How is it meant to, or was this before, you know, deep concepts of world building came in? I wonder if anyone's tried to map out this entire place. <laughs> I remember on the Terry Pratchett website, there was one section for like the map of the Discord. And you clicked on that and it just said, imagination has no map. That's like, cute, but also fuck that. That's so mean. Just give us the goddamn map. I do think there's a piece I of merchandise later on that did have a map for the Discworld. <laughs> So fuck you, imagination. Yeah, that's right. So unfortunately, Sans Roi sees Saturain and Una, and Sans Roi gets into a fight with Saturain. We don't know who wins. We don't even know whether either of them survive, because Una fucks off very quickly. Yeah, she does. Um, Wait, no, 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 no. Was there? Oh, yeah, no. I noted on stanza 43, comedy? Because the way the fight between the two is described feels like a, a loony bit where they fight for a bit, they get tired, and they fight some more, and they get tired, and then like that gives them enough time uh, for Una to catch up, and um, and then Sanjoy like thinks with his dick and tries to like get her, but and also. 48, wait, excuse me, I thought Archimage was dead, and that was my feelings for Canto 6. And at the very end, she meets up again with the dwarf. So, maybe to the rescue? Maybe Una will come to the rescue. That would be nice for a change. I I mean, later on we're going to get to the point, but in this book, uh, the Red Cross Knight doesn't really uh, do anything. Doesn't re- he, he? He kills the dragon, but other than that, he doesn't save himself at all. <laughs> he, I, I mean, he's unable to do anything. He needs the greatness of truth and yes, honor. Feel, you know, make him great. He isn't good enough to do anything at yeah. this stage. I do feel that maybe this is sort of like um, this. You know, nowadays we say that's a passive protagonist. You need to re-edit that. Do something different. He needs to do something to save himself. I do feel that maybe there's some philosophical or theological import to this that, you know, Protestants say faith alone can save you. It would be sort of wrong to have St. George save himself from sin. He needs truth to other people to help him. And these yeah, other people. That was definitely my reading was that yeah, the, 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 he, he is not someone who is going to gain these things by learning, but because he is already the person who should have these things these things will come to him. Canto 7. 
And we begin with masturbation. Anyone want to fight me on that claim? Uh, let me reread that stanzas. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, let me let me actually re- <laughs> let me read it out. <laughs> I just I I don't want anyone in our audience thinking that I just made that up. But also, <laughs> but also remember that this is a work from the 1600s, which was presented to the Queen. He's not going to be obvious about this. You're going to need to take a bit of a, a close look at the lines. Mm. Uh, All right. Yet goodly court he made still to his dame, poured out in looseness on the grassy ground, both careless of his health and of his fame. That is the three lines. So let's say them again, just so that we can go through them. Yet goodly court he made still to his dame. Now his dame is not there, neither Duessa nor Una is there. So he's thinking of her, but goodly court, mm, he's having sexy thoughts of her, poured out in looseness on the grassy ground. So like Onan in the Bible, he is Onanizening, Onanizening on the ground. Uh, And he is pouring out his looseness on the ground, both careless of his health, because at the time they thought that this was very bad for your health, and of his fame. Yes, what kind of a knight would dare, dare to touch himself? So yes, this is masturbation. He is masturbating here. Okay, okay. I will allow this. No, but again, I was mentioning that um, that lecture series. I forget. I don't know what the guy's name is. I can't find his name on his website. Uh, his the website is called animetobios.podbean.com. But anyway, he's saying that remember, remember undergraduates, remember teenagers. Yes, certain things are metaphors for sex, but the sex is a metaphor for something else. Don't stop with the sex. Think further than the sex. And his point about this was that what is, to the Renaissance mind, what is masturbation? Masturbation is a pointless expenditure of your energy. You're not doing anything with this. You're just indulging yourself. You're not making babies. You should be making babies with that stuff. You are pointlessly expending yourself. So that is what um, he is doing here. He is self-indulging himself. He is wasting his energy. He is not doing anything good with his energy. He should be fighting a dragon. But at the moment, he is just indulging himself. I mean, yeah, I guess that is what masturbation is at its core. But it seems to me you've picked an example of self-indulgence rather than... <laughs> I mean, this it, is, it, it, is a, it is a good metaphor for it. And also to, to build on this metaphor, the reason why he starts getting so weak is that he is at a standing pond, and this standing pond was originally one of Diana's nymphs, but this nymph was very lazy and, and stopped in the middle of a race. So Diana says, because you're so lazy, I'm going to make you into a lazy pond. And, you know, the, everyone knows don't drink from standing ponds. They, they are filthy. They will make you sick. And so he, he drinks from it, and immediately he becomes weak and feeble. This is... So he... he and at this point, this is where the giant monster, a giant ogre called Orgoglio comes here. And this monster, even though we've just left Pride's palace, we meet again another symbol of pride, Orgoglio. And I'm, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. But the idea is that, yes, you think you've escaped pride, but that makes you feel pride again. But you don't recognize pride this time. So it's new pride you're finding. Uh, that is the thing about lots of these sins. They come in different forms. <laughs> but any comments on this? Any comments on the masturbation or anything? Um, 
I was going, yeah, I was, I was going, why was this backstory for this one nymph necessary? Oh, right. He just drank from the cursed spring. Again, this feels like a very, uh, RPG scene where, you know, the character is your, the player is forced to, to read the introspections of the character and then they're drinking from the pond and it's like, you set up camp, you set up camp at a certain part on the overworld and then the face of black and you think, oh shit, something's going to happen in the plot now. Yeah. It's like, you can't, it's, it's like, I want to save, but I can't. No, why? I do find it quite cute that the giant also gets a little bit of parentage going. Although it does suck that he is from a monstrous mass of earthly slime puffed up with empty wind and filled with sinful crime. It is very double bubble dropper, toil and trouble. And Duessa comes out, and quite expectantly, she does ally with the giant ogre after the ogre has beaten the now weakened and post-orgasm St. George. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, so she says to him, Oh, great Orgorio, greatest under sky, oh, hold thy mortal hand for lady's sake, hold for my sake and do him not to die, but vanquish thy, thine eternal bond slave make, and me thy worthy mead unto thy lemon take. Oh, well, in that case, she, she is trying to save St. George, there's something in that. Yeah, she, <laughs> She does, you know, the more I read, the, she does do these rather decent things throughout the story. Doesn't seem to have any reason for doing them, but she does do these good things. Yeah, for, for that was stanza 14, and my note yeah. says, uh, Duessa rolls charisma. <laughs> uh, 15, giant agrees, takes Duessa, throws night in dungeon. 16, Duessa lives the high life. Charisma, yeah. sex. I mean, yeah, the, the, the argument could be made that Duess is doing whatever protects St. George, but doesn't help St. George. I mean, I wonder if this is like a like a domination tactic where, you know, oh, knight who presumes himself so good, you only live by my grace, the lady in Scarlet's grace. It's a little bit like, um, not Morticia. Who's the evil witch lady in Sleeping Beauty? Maleficent? Maleficent, great name. Um, She says to the prince, Hi, I'm not going to kill you. You're just going to live here until you're old and decrepit and sad and you can't have kids. And I will let you walk through my gates when you are like as as weak and frail as a gillyweed. And then you can go kiss Princess Aurora. And she'll still be beautiful because time has stopped over there. And you will die, and she will live not knowing your true love. And, like, that's some serious savagery that I just live for. And I feel I'm, I'm feeling feeling similar vibes from Duessa right now. Like, just true sadistic long-term cruelty. <laughs> she is a deeper character than I gave her credit for. At least I, it's entirely possible that I am giving her more character than she absolutely deserves. But, um, you know, Duessa, like, again, going with framework of Final Fantasy and Final Fantasy specifically, not necessarily um, Souls games, like, she is sort of basically the side character you thought was your friend, and it turns out she was the enemy all along. 
quietly smirking in the background going, yes, hero, you think you know everything. And I just feel like that extra touch of dramatic cruelty would make a really good end boss, especially considering that she ends up riding a hydra in rows of purple and scarlet and has a goblet of gold. Man, how cool is that description? Yeah, this giant hydra and her with a triple crown and yeah, mm. I I just love that. I love that image. It, it it it's kind of sad that the image doesn't pay off later on. It uh, well, it's it pays off as much as a final boss fight can. It uh, it's sort of well. So let's actually keep moving on. We haven't gotten to that point yet. Oh. We're we're up to the point where so Saint George has been taken captive. He's out of the story for the moment. We come back to Una and the dwarf, and the dwarf has gives us a previously on segment telling her exactly what's happened so far. But Una then meets King Arthur. Were you expecting this to be a King Arthur story? He's Prince Arthur at the moment, but were you expecting this? It's like no. when you watch Prometheus. You think, oh, this what? is an alien film. Yeah. I wasn't expecting like actual King Arthur. But it uh, kind of makes sense looking back on it. <laughs> And he comes in wearing quite a gaudy piece of armor. Uh, so it says something like, At last he chanced by good hap to meet a goodly knight, fair marching by the way, together with his squire, arrayed meet. His glitterand armor shined far away, like glancing light of Phoebus' brightest way. From top to toe, no place appeared bare. By that deadly dint of steel may, athwart his breast a bold bravery wore that shined like twinkling stars with stones most precious rare. And so he he's wearing his his armor is covered in precious jewels. Now that is a bit too much. Okay, first of all, twenty nine. I wrote a knight in shining armor, and I'm, I just wanted to die a little bit inside. And with the helmet, Sophie, you're talking about the fact that the helmet has like a giant tail. Yeah, a giant tail and like a, a dragon. Brief yeah. moment, and like ages ago, about how you know a drink a dragon and griffin fight both um fighting for their own cause whether it be good or evil and i'm just quietly wondering wait is the is the dragon the evil one uh is the griffin the evil one um do well, we i just think have maybe that the dragon night? is meant to be the symbol of wales and prince arthur's sort of has some heritage in wales i mean that's where the stories seem to originate in some senses so there is uh maybe that's a bit of a welsh thing there maybe but I, I was just going, oh, no, is Una just deal with another bad card? I just kind of like the idea of the tail, if you thought of it not as a tail, but a cape. That this is literally like a superhero outfit. Although <laughs> his armor is very Catholic. A lot of Mother Mary iconography on it. Is that the, um, the jewel that looks like a woman's face? Oh, I didn't see that. The jewel that looks like a face. Well, well, um, a lady's head-shaped jewel and other shiny stanza 30. Shaped like a lady's head. Oh, okay. Um, I've got here in my notes that that's actually referring to the fairy queen herself, which is Elizabeth. So the, the idea of um, the one precious stone in the midst of it is Elizabeth herself. That if oh. King Arthur is the representation of all of England... Elizabeth being the shining jewel of England. Uh, okay, yeah, that's an interpretation. Yeah, um, but that's just what they say in the notes. I don't know if that's <laughs> that is a fair interpretation or not. 
I, I do want to point out that uh, stanza 33, we find out that his shield is made of adamantium, which just brings us back to the superheroes of Marvel. Yep, just um, uh, diamond shield. Why? <laughs> Why? Yep. Just waiting for more unobtainium in this at some point. Ah! Yep. There's a diamond in a frame of adamantium. It's just so very bedazzled. <laughs> yes. It, it, it's certainly a, a show of... It's, it's not going to be a show of his asceticism, is it? It's not that. I'm sure that if if either Alan Moore or Grant Morrison ever wrote a <laughs> Wolverine story, they'd probably make a reference to that. But... Oh, wow. I, I, I kind of want to... Yeah, an Alan Moore graphic novel version of the Fairy Queen. I think in I think it, I, I'm sure at some point. Oh, actually, yes, definitely in um, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen after the first Victorian era ones. The idea was that in the Victorian era, no, in the Elizabethan era, the ruler of England was Gloriana. So it's it's the Fairy Queen does play a role in it. My notes also say that this shield is very much like stolen from another epic poem. Like, its description is really similar to an Italian poem called Orlando Furioso. That is one of the... I'm sure that he read it. Um, one of those incredibly influential things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on be that note, surprised. just a bit, of a, curi- <laughs> on a bit of a curio, Orlando Furioso, also the source for Much Ado About Nothing. Oh. It is the source of not the Benedict and Beatrice plot, not the plot it's known for, but for the other plot, the hero and the other guy. The, the hero and, plot. Yeah. It's, for, it's the source for the part of that story nobody cares about. Canto 8. Arth, Prince Arthur and Una go to the rescue of St. George, who has been kept prisoner by the ogre, Orgoyo, with Duessa in her castle. And this is where all those terrible monsters that we were mentioning in the previous canto section were. We find that St. George, he's tied up in the dungeon. He's chained up in the dungeon. And Arthur, I'll admit that I haven't made many notes for this section. It is just, they come to the rescue. Arthur kills the ogre and gets a key from a man called Ignario, Ignaro, who just means ignorance. And I wonder why this section here, so the guy called Ignaro, so his name means ignorance, his head is on backwards, you know, ignorance sees backwards. Arthur says, where's, where's the prison room? Ignaro says, I don't know. Uh, he says, okay, tell, can you point me in the general direction? I don't know. Can you tell me what this key does? I don't know. So at what you'd expect from Ignaro. But I do wonder why Arthur needs to get the key to St. George's place from ignorance. I don't know what the metaphorical meaning of this is. Does anyone have any ideas? Uh, haven't we missed a whole thing? I, we've, I, I'll admit that I did skip over the fight. Do you want to get into the fight? Okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. For a desperate second, I was like, did I misread the, the, the situation? But yeah, no, 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 it's fine. There's like how many standards of fight? With this book, it is long. I say long; it's 160 pages, which is not that long compared to most fantasy novels. But there are like let's say that three things happen in every chapter. 
and between those three things are the longest way of saying them possible. Uh, 24 standard stanzas of battle. The giant ends up being decapitated. Uh, Hydra loses a head. Duessa runs. And um, at the end, the Una's like, it was this scarlet bitch whore that tricked my gorgeous knight into doing what he has done to me, which, frankly, I feel like Una is way too forgiving. I would straight up go into, like, villainous mode and just fucking kill kill the dude. Because why not? Why not, man? And, yeah, Ignario shows up in stanza 31, which is, like, more than halfway through this whole canto. Do we have any idea? I mean, I, I, I think that maybe the reason why he needs to go to ignorance to get the key is maybe it's the idea that if you're trying to get your friend out of a funk or out of a delusion, you sort of have to meet them halfway, sort of pretend that their stupidity is real for a second just so you can get in there with them, maybe. Like, oh, you think that aliens took your wife? Oh, yes, aliens. Let's talk about aliens. But actually, let me tell you the truth now. Maybe that's it. I don't know. It just seems like a weird character to bring up at that point. For me, I was desperately hoping that because you know i still hadn't fully appreciated that this red cross knight is saint george the dragon slayer when so when an old man comes up i'm just desperately hoping that this is the knight getting his comeuppance and just you know the the pond of weakness has absolutely drained the life out of him but no it's a different character entirely and i'm like i wanted my knight to suffer he has been a bad boy such a bad boy maybe ignorance is bliss um and so you you can't really blame the the ignorant for following evil peeps because they know not what they do doing a quick reread i think the main thing with ignorance is not so much about what they're saying about ignorance is about how arthur responds to it like with temperance um, or in, something, he in says, I'm... stanza 34, his answer likewise was he could not tell, whose senseless speech and doted ignorance, when, as the noble prince had marked well, he guessed his nature by his countenance and calmed his wrath with goodly temperance. So it's to say, don't waste your time on fools, is what we're supposed to get from it. If you have foolish people who can't help you at all, don't waste your time trying to understand them or getting them to help you. Just reach around and take the keys off them. Yes, take what little they can give you. Yeah, he just takes the keys off him. He he doesn't even ask for the keys to be handed to him. He he reaches around and takes them. Although I do like, he guessed his nature by his countenance. But I, I, maybe there's like a little joke there that he's the guy's head is on backwards. He's just looking at the back of his head. That's his countenance. So I guess his face by his countenance. Oh, he has no countenance. Yeah. So I think that's the, probably the only thing we're supposed to take from it is that a, a good and wise king will ignore the idiots, not try and understand them. Mm. Whether or not that's actually a good thing or not, blah, blah, blah. But I think that's what Spencer's trying to say, is that great leaders ignore those fools who say you should be kind to the Irish. Yeah, oh, my God. Most, uh, yeah, yeah, that is, that is certainly a, a bit to, to go in. Yes. I mean, we mention, you know, we keep on mentioning how um, his defense of, this, you know, his, his rather odd views of the Irish is one of, but 
when it comes, he wrote this work called A View of the Present State of Ireland. And it's one of those ironic things where he manages to put in the most rhetorically perfect way the counter-argument to himself. He means to put, he's talking about Lord Grey, and he supported Lord Grey and all the things Lord Grey did in Ireland. But he says of Lord Grey, uh, where after long travel and many perilous essays, he had brought things almost to this pass that he speak of, that it was even made ready for reformation and might have been brought to what Her Majesty would. Like complaint was made against him, that he was a bloody man and regarded not the life of her subjects no more than dogs, but had wasted and consumed all, so as now she had nothing left but to reign in their ashes. Now, he doesn't believe that, but he does. But it's sort of ironic that he does manage to put the counter-argument so forcefully. I suppose that's a sign of a good writer, isn't it? Yeah. And he... And then we have him going into the dungeon to try to get him out, to try to get St. George out. And there's one point that really struck me, which he says, which when that champion heard with piercing point of pity dear, his heart thrilled sore, and trembling horror ran through every joint, or ruth of gentle knight so foul for law, which shaking off he rent that iron door with furious force and indignation fell, where entered in his foot could find no floor, but all a deep descent as dark as hell, that breathe ever forth a filthy, baneful smell. Okay, there's no flaw there. It seems there's an awful smell here. It seems like it's going to be very difficult to get through, to get to St. George and get him out. <laughs> but neither darkness foul, nor filthy hands, nor noisome smell, his purpose could withhold entire affection, hath nicer hands. But that with constant zeal and courage bold, after long pains and labours manifold, he found the means that prisoner up to rear, whose feeble thighs... I mean, so it's basically just saying he worked hard and he got him out. Yeah. Now, this is a writer who has spent like stanzas and stanzas and stanzas telling us every little thing. Here he's saying, This is not I the can't think... you're looking for. Yes. I can't think of a reason. I can't think of how he got him out of there. He worked hard. That's it. Yeah. Were you Pretty disappointed, bad. Sophie? Did you want 30 stanzas about how he got him out of that room? Um, no, not really. Although, um, for that note, I basically put down Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time, Kakariko Well. <laughs> Because have, have either of you played that game slash that specific section? I haven't, but my wife has. Because um, you have to break a windmill because it's pumping water into the well. So if you drain it, you'd find out there's a lot of torture chambers and like um, crucifixes with blood stains and a lot of false floors. Like if you just walk around blindly, you just drop and you lose like three hearts. And oh, it turns out you're inside a swampy acidic mess with with like dead hands just reaching for the ceiling and you're like oh god oh god this is a nightmare this is meant to be a cute little children's game why am i inside hell and it's a uh why is it that it's the japanese version of western um fantasy that gives us the fairy queen i i again i am unironic when i say i want someone to translate this into japanese and give it to miyazaki well you but, you heard it here. Head out, people. Get to work. If you are a Japanese-English translator, good luck. Uh, but now, at the end, Duessa has been defeated, and so they strip her down. They take off her scarlet robe. And again, we, before, we got a brief hint of how hideous she was. We knew she was an old hag. But now, Spencer... Oh, I'm going to get this. I'm gonna, she's having real fun with this. Her crafty head was altogether bald. And as in hate of honourable eld, was overgrown with scurf and filthy scorn. 
Her teeth out of her rotten gums were felled, and her sour breath abominably smelled. Her dry dugs, like bladders lacking wind, hung down, and filthy matter from them welled. Her rizzled skin as tough as maple rind, so scabby was that would have loathed all womankind. Her nether parts, the shame of all her... Has to go to the nether parts, has to talk about her privates. We already knew that there was something wrong with her. Yes, yes, the shame of all her kind, my chaster muse. For shame doth blush to write, but at her romp she growing had behind a fox's tail, with dong or foully dight, and eke her feet most monstrous word in sight, for one of them was like an eagle's claw with gripping talons, armed to greedy fight, the other like a bear's uneven paw, more ugly shape never living creature saw. He really says, look, look at the hideous woman. Look at her. Look at it. I won't talk. I won't tell you about her vagina, but it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> the whole evil is bad and beauty is good, unless it's sexy, in which case it's even worse. I do so- like how he here he is using an incredibly conventional poetic, you know, structure where in this time period, if you read any love poems from the era, the idea is go down, go down, go down the body. Start at the hair, go down, go down, go down. Talk about how beautiful she is. When you get to the vagina, sort of mention it, but skip over it. And that will lead your readers to imagine her vagina without you saying anything. And then keep on going down. So it, it's doing that, except for the opposite, for ugliness. So it is It's sort of like, I, maybe this is sort of a bit of a reference, bit of a joke sort of here. Honestly, hard to say. I think it was doing it sincerely. Because, like, yeah, I as on the one hand, I would like to think that it's like a party, but it's too old. Like, the trope feels very absolutely... Um, oh, no, I'm not saying there. that he means that, oh, actually, she isn't ugly. I Oh, that, that isn't bad. I, I do think these things, oh, ugliness equals evil. I just mean that this sort of playing with genre is meant to be a bit of a cheeky, sort of tongue-in-cheek thing. Yeah, I'm not sure he's playing with it. He's merely using it. Yeah. I am surprised that they let her live. I will say that. Like those telltale games up in the corner. Duessa will remember this. Yes, but we'll let Meta. Duessa will remember this. That's great. And now. Canto nine. We're getting closer and closer to the end here. Are we feel it? Has was, our discussion made us feel more engaged with this work? Do we like it more after this point? After spending three hours and seven minutes with it? No, at this point, I don't care. And this is this is coming very close to the point where I didn't care when I was reading it. I must say that this part here was a bit of a pick me up for me. Canto nine. Ah. <laughs> uh, Canto 9 is where we meet another Dark Souls boss. We meet Despair in Despair's home. <laughs> in this part, you know, we get Arthur tells us his backstory. This isn't important for now. That's going to be important later on, I think. I haven't read the rest of it. I think it's going to be important later on. But Arthur tells us his own story. Apparently, this was also meant to be sort of sucking up to the Tudors here. Because the Tudors, because they had some Welsh blood in them, they like to say, oh, actually, we are the sort of Prince Arthur Welsh. We go back to Prince Arthur. So talking about his uh, backstory may be a, a bit of pro-Tudor propaganda. 
Apparently, yeah. this version of the King Arthur story is not the is not really the conventional one for the significance of the changes, but like the Ultimate Universe Spider Man, slightly different. So, so what would have been the previous like Arthur canon? Like for, for me, Arthur's canon's really Mort de Arthur, which is well after this. Um, Mort de Arthur, maybe if he was good as. Maybe well, no, was this, it was just before no. this, wasn't it? it was yeah, so Mort d'Arthur is 1485. And also there's like the French, you know, Chrétien de Troyes, uh, which maybe uh, maybe there were translations of that in English. I mean, it is about an English king, so you imagine there'd be some demand for those stories in English. Yeah, so no, it was my mistake. I thought Mort d'Arthur was younger than that. Never mind. <laughs> and we have... So here, so Prince, I'm not. So let's not dwell, unless you want to dwell on Prince Arthur's backstory. But I don't think we'll get much out of it at the point. No, no, I really just lost interest because uh, I don't like the knight. I don't like the knight at all. So the fact by the knight you mean Prince Arthur? No, um, the fucking Georgie. So at this point, we have um, the introduction of another villain. And again, like Dark Souls, we have someone come out and say, oh, no, there's an awful thing over there. And then you go over there, and it is an awful thing. You regret going over there. Uh, We have a guy called Sir Sheverson come up and warn them of despair. So he says, a man of hell that calls himself despair, who first us greets in after fairer deeds of tidings strange and of adventures rare, so creeping close as snake in hidden weeds, inquireth of our states and of our nightly deeds, which when he knew and felt our feeble hearts, embossed with bale and bitter biting grief, which love had launched with his deadly darts, with wounding words and terms of foul reprief, he plucked from us all hope of due relief, that erst us held in love of lingering life. Then hopeless, heartless, gan the cunning thief persuade us die, to stint all further strife. To me he lent his rope, to him a rusty knife. So Sir Tristram managed to escape just in time, but, you know, this despair... We're going to meet him later on, but despair is the kind of guy who can just argue you into committing suicide. Like a like a, a Renaissance debate bro. <laughs> Although the debate bros, they accidentally argue into suicide. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm just being, I'm just being realistic, bro. And I'm like, cool, um, I'm just going to go into that corner and never have to talk to anyone again. But then we have St. George. He's thinking to himself, oh, it can't be that bad. Can't be that- how-, how could he just talk you into killing yourself? That could never happen to me. And then he does go over there. I, I meant this does, again, this area really, really seems like a Soulsborne encounter where it is and all about old stocks and stubs of trees whereon nor fruit nor leaf was ever seen, did hang upon the ragged rocky meads, on which had many wretches hanged been, whose carcasses were scattered on the green and thrown about the cliffs, arrived there that bare-head knight for dread of doleful teen, would fain have fled, nay durst approach and near, but the other forced him stay and comforted in fear. The darksome caves they enter, where they find that cursed man, low sitting on the ground, musing full sadly in his sullen mind, his grisly locks long grown and unbound, disordered hung about his shoulders round, and hid his face, through which his hollow eye looked deadly dull and stared as astound, his raw cheekbones through penury and pine were shrunk into his jaws, as he did never dine. 
His garments nought but many ragged clouts, which thorns together pined and patched was. The witch's naked sides he wrapped about, and him beside there lay upon the grass, a dreary corpse whose life away did pass, all wallowed in his own yet lukewarm blood, that from his wound yet well fresh, alas, in which a rusty knife fast fixed stood, and made an open passage for the gushing flood. Now this does remind, there was a meme about the, the Soulsborne games, where you have one, on one side there is a monster called the 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 shitting moor of hell and it's a massive lump of monster and then the player character is thinking oh good uh this will be fun and then there's another character who's just a guy called the general and the main character is going oh shit he's gonna kill me now this is that sort of thing we have this little set we've seen the massive monsters before we've killed those but no this little old man who who is not eating anything he's the bad guy yeah don't ever trust the old elderly. That's what you're going to know. Sophie, anything? Do you, does this remind you? I of was the actually looking for the meme, um, and the meme—it's—it's it's such a badly painted clip paint thing. Anus fucker of the black abyss, and has three health bars. And the player's like, "Phew, thank God!" And there's just like a one single health bar over the captain in the distance, and it's like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> yes, it is. That is a great one. So, so here he's he's meeting, as I said, this guy is, Despair is a debate bro, where Despair is going to essentially argue St. George into killing himself. And the way he does it is that he is using conventional debating tactics, he is using conventional rhetoric. But when you actually look at it overall, he, is con- he constantly contradicts himself. He is using every argument he can to make this guy kill himself. But the arguments, they do not, that they are mutually exclusive. Like he begins by saying to him, to St. George, you're such an awful man. You deserve to die. That's God's punishment to you. You deserve to die. But then he goes on to say, life is awful. Death is a reward for you. It's a good thing. Kill yourself. So he's arguing into death by saying, oh, it's a bad thing. You deserve a bad thing. But also it's a good thing. You deserve a good thing. Kill yourself. So it's it's sort of uh, by the nature of it, it is getting across the uh, the incoherence of despair in this case. And Frank, maybe this uh, this does sort of get some of the the psychology of despair for some people who feel despair. I mean, yeah, yeah, it makes sense because there's this whole, you know, as someone who's been down that dark form of depression, is that there is this whole concept of I don't deserve anything in this life because I'm not worthy of it. Therefore, I want the sweet release of death. And it's like, if it's such a sweet release, then do I really deserve it? Yes, it is. So in a very dark way, it, it actually captures the legitimate problematic thinking of someone who's in deep depression. And, and at the time, they did think of depression, like, well, they didn't call it depression, but they, they thought would of call they it had despair. A, <laughs> they, had, they, had a melan- they had a thing called melancholia, and they did think of despair, they thought it was a sin. But they, did, they, they had to think about this. They had to consider yeah. what ways to get out of it, what ways to think about it. And, and I, I do like at one point, like, the, the red, it's, it's like, it's like those people who say, oh, depression, what's so bad about depression? But then after Despair starts talking to him, he says, the knight much wondered at his sudden wit. Say, oh, oh, actually, I think I misjudged this. I think that, uh, oh, there, there's something bad about this, actually. Uh, Sophie, any comments about this? Or did you sort of zone out? Yeah, like, um, well, I zoned out reading this because, you know, the fun stuff was over as far as I'm concerned. Like, I do agree the whole, the soul's meme of this is the captain when 
the final boss, and so much worse than anus fucker of the Black Abyss. But like it did, uh, I agreed with despair. You know, this man deserves to die. Like, because he's 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 bad. Unad would did I, I not do deserve like the, anything that came to her. No, but I do like how you know, in a sense, like he's right. You know, so the thing about despair is that he's telling you half true things. That you are awful. You've done awful things. You deserve to be punished. But then the person who saves Saint George, the one who sort of argues him out of his funk is Una, and she comes by, and that, what's the line? It is, ah. So, which, when Una saw through every vein, the curdled, the crudled cold ran to her well of life, as in a swoon, but soon relieved again, out of his hand she snatched the cursed knife. So, St. George is about to kill himself at that point, and threw it to the ground, enraged rife, and to him said, Fie, fie, faint-hearted knight, what meanest thou by this reproachful strife? Is this the battle which thou wants to fight? with the fire-mouthed dragon, horrible and bright. So this is sort of the thing that he's going to learn in the next book, where he goes to actually give true repentance for his sins, which is that, yes, killing yourself, that may be a punishment, but, you know, you haven't done anything good. You, you've done bad, so surely you should try to do some good before you die. Do, so she's saying, look, you promised to fight a dragon. Killing yourself won't kill the dragon. You, you've forgotten to kill the dragon. Remember to kill the dragon. Yeah, um, that was when... That sort of makes it a little clear to me that, oh, yeah, they were kill a dragon. Maybe this is sort of a meta, a meta technique in the text where, oh, even the reader, you reader as well, you forgot they were meant to kill a dragon. You're sort of like St. George. Maybe Una should just go kill the dragon herself because this man has failed her on so many levels, on so many times. I think Una deserves better. But yeah, isn't no. that the nature of divine grace? You do not deserve this forgiveness, and yet you receive it. Mm. Say, the truth can set you free, but you're the oh. one who needs to do something about it. Hate it. Hate it. The cringe. <laughs> the utmost sincerity is anathema to me, this broken-brained cave dweller. I am despair. I have the knife. But yeah. Um... No, like, Una has a point, but, you know. Canto 10. Now we get to, he's just escaped despair, and now St. George has come to a place of correction, sort of a a school where the three heavenly virtues, Fidela, Speranza, Carissa, I, I, I'm not sure if that's the correct accent, but let's say it is, and their mother, Coria, are there, and they are there to help him become a better man. When it, so Fidela, Fidelia, she is faithfulness, and Speranza, she is hope, so hope, the opposite of despair, and they're both virgins. But Carissa, who is charity because she is about giving things in the world, she is always having babies because charity makes things in the world. And that is sort of like having babies. I found Carissa to just, there is something about constantly popping out babies, always countless babies popping out of you. It doesn't matter how nicely you want to paint it. There is something a bit disturbing about that image. Is that just me? 
Well, no, I, you're thinking uh, about the woman in Monty Python's Meaning of Life, standing there cleaning the dishes? Oh, yes. Uh, every sperm is sacred. Every sperm is cord. Yeah. Uh, I remember seeing that film when I was eight years old, not knowing what a sperm was. <laughs> it's oh, just a God. It is I mean, as like, British as this poem. If this... Carissa was a harpy, it would be less horrifying. Yes, this is... I mean, so this part, it is set in, you know, a place where the heavenly virtues are. I feel that, I mean, this does seem like the most saccharine part of the book. This is where all the sweetness and light is. Uh, But I will say that there are certain moments in it that sort of puncture this, which do make it sort of give a sort of a heavy metal sheen to it, that it's not so, it's not like an American evangelicals idea of heaven. Like uh, there's a description, I think it's of Fidelia, so uh, 13, where... Okay, so ah, so this is Fidelia. She was arrayed all in lily white, and in her right hand bore a cup of gold with wine and water filled up to the height. So that that's you know that's very you know clean, sanitized. In which a serpent did himself enfold, that horror made to all that did behold. But she no whit did change her constant mood, and in her other hand she fast did hold a book that was both signed and sealed with blood, wherein dark things were writ hard to be understood. Now that is that is an image that is not in the sort of greeting card version of heaven. Uh, a serpent in a cup and a Bible written in blood. That's metal as fuck though. Yeah. I I not gonna lie, next to that my notes on oh, next to that in Stanza's number is just a little heart with a little um snake tongue coming out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, and so when he's being... I'll be honest with this. This is really the training montage part of the book. He is... Before the fight with the dragon, he's to purify himself. And real. I'll admit that even I was skipping over quite a lot of this. It is just... I think we have another epic catalogue here where he meets some other virtues who teach him how to be a good man or something like that. Uh, but here, he, he almost falls to despair again. So then... so. Um, so grieved with remembrance of his wicked ways and pricked with anguish of sin so sore that he desired to end his wretched days so much the dart of sinful guilt the soulless maze. But wise Sperenza, so hope, opposite of despair, gave him comfort sweet and taught him how to take assured hold upon her silver anchor as was meet. Else had his sins so great and manifold made him forget all that Fidelia told in this distressed doubtful agony uh, when him his dearest Una did behold disdaining life, desiring leave to die. She found herself assailed with great perplexity. So yada, yada, yada. But basically, he's being told, you know, get, get, perk up, perk up, do good in the world. Don't kill yourself. That is, that, this is what this uh, chapter basically is. And, but key to this is that this is where we learn that this is actually his origin story. So let us go to, um, this is actually quite a long chapter, actually. I think it's the longest in this actual book, I think. Yeah, because then you've got all the, priests too you've got like the seven prayers or something like that the bead holders what was it the beadmen another epic catalogue of people you will never see again yeah were they in the sad house of penance i've lost i i stopped um numbering my um bad mistake yes they are in the house of penance i think yeah Yeah. the second was the armor of the place his office was the hungry feed and thirsty give to drink a work of grace the third had of their wardrobe custody in which they're not even named. No wonder I didn't take notes. 
the fourth appointed by his office was poor prisoners to relieve with gracious aid and captives to redeem with price with price of brass. I'm assuming it's brass from Turks and Saracens, which them had stayed, etc., etc. They have no names and they don't look cool. They're just peeps. They're just guys who do stuff. They're just guys who do stuff. Where are the winged feet? Like, it is come always on. difficult to make the heavenly thing interesting. Well, I think in uh, Dante's Paradiso, even Dante says, look, this is going to be a difficult one to get through. Uh, if you no. like the previous two books, you know, steal yourself for this. Because, yeah, no, Bible, Bible angels go, be not afraid, because, you know, in theory, they are terrifying to look upon. Like you have and before we get any and... before we get any emails, I, we do acknowledge that that is not all the angels in the Bible. Some of them are the conventional sort of humanoid things. Aha! Uh-huh. Just before any emails, <laughs> I want all my celestial beings, good or bad, to be absolute nightmares to look upon, or at the very least, be beautiful monsters as you see in Bayonetta. Perfect Bayonetta, the perfect version. Of heaven and hell. No, uh, I can't stress enough just how gorgeous monstrosities the angels are in Bayonetta. Just please, if you haven't played the game, I do not care. It's not. It's not even spoilers. Like just Google Bayonetta angels, and you will have just a gorgeous time looking at as Bayonetta. An everything that EA's Dante's Inferno wanted to be. Yes. <laughs> Just these gorgeous little monsters, and I, uh, you, you know, you understand why they were worshipped and feared in equal measure. Why did? Um, why couldn't we have had that for this? You know. And then we have, I forget who's showing him this, but uh, Saint George is brought up. He's been purified. Now he is fit to see various things. Uh, then he goes up to see the. New Jerusalem up in heaven. This is the heavenly city, but also he's told that, ah, but there is also, I think it's Cleopolis, where the fairy queen, Gloriana, who is actually uh, Elizabeth in the Romana cleft that this is, uh, this is the earthly paradise, the earthly paradise on earth. Maybe that's England, maybe, or just London. But the idea is that St. George is going, he's promised heaven, but also you're going to be serving the the next best thing, the greatest we can get on Earth, which is Cleopolis, fairy queen. And then he is told, uh, this is where he gets the idea, this is sort of like when Nick Fury comes up and says, I am going to introduce you to the Avengers Initiative, where he's shout, so, uh, for thou amongst those saints whom thou do see shalt be a saint, and thine own nation's friend and patron, thou, St. George, shalt call thee, St. George of Merry England the sign of victory. So you really are an Iron Man. Excuse me while I wretch. Ah, and also he says, unworthy wretch, quoth he, of so great grace, how dare I think such glory to attain? These that have it attained were in like case, quoth he, as wretched and lived in like pain, but deeds of arms must I at least be fain and ladies love to leave so dearly bought. So yada, yada, yada. So he does first reject the call. He does first say, look, I don't deserve this. I don't want to be this. And also, I think later on, he says that, look, um, oh, let me not, what he, then turn again back to the world whose joys so fruitless are. But let me hear, for I in peace remain, 
or straightway on the last long voyage fare, that nothing may my present hope impair. That may not be, said he. Nay, mayest thou yet forego that royal maid's bequeathed care, who did her cause unto their hand commit, till from her cursed foe thou have her freely quit. So the basic idea is, well, heaven's so nice, being with God is so nice, why would I go back down to earth? Why would I do anything on earth? Stay chilling out in your bathtub instead. Pretty easy it choice. Promised. Boo. Sorry, I, I will <laughs> now. Really don't like the guy. Una would have just fought the dragon. I'm trying to think of a story where they do have Amazons who are not, you know, actual woman warriors who are not ultimately conquered in a Renaissance literature. I can't think of one. I doubt I, you'll find it in Renaissance literature. I mean, mm. sort of, yeah, I mean, in Two Noble Kinsmen, Hippolyta does maintain some independence, but she does just become a housewife at some point. Canto 11. Now he fights the dragon. Did you like this? Were you excited by this? Was this a good fight scene, everyone? By this point, I did not care. (laughs) No, I... If if we were fighting, if, you know, the previous... What's the word? Sins. If we were fighting Envy, um, riding his, like, savage wolf, then fuck yeah, I would have been, like, so hyped. But no. Here, I was just like, I don't care about you, George. I just want Una to live a happy life without you. Go eat shit. I must, have, well, I must uh, again, I keep, maybe this is my Stockholm syndrome uh, or my, um, my full immersion tactics in Renaissance literature where I've forgotten what modern stuff is like. But I did find this to be quite modern, even in just certain ones of the beats where, you know, so first of all, the Una and St. George, they're speaking together, they're speaking, they're speaking. And then there's the roar of the dragon. Now, that does seem like it would come from a modern fantasy film. Two characters are talking, and then the monster roars. That really does seem straight out of something modern. And also the way this fight progresses, where we do have one of, a few of those all is lost moments, where St. George is fighting, he's fighting, but he's getting beaten back, beaten back. Oh, and it seems like he's got goner. Oh, but then he gets back up again and he fights. Oh, he gets knocked down again. Oh, but it seems he can fight again. So this is structured. A bit like like a modern climactic battle scene. Greg, you said you were trying to cram in four of these chapters in a night. Um, And Sophie, you were trying to cram in eight of these chapters in a day. So I do wonder how, whether or not you would have liked this ending more if you had perhaps spaced it out a bit more. Perhaps, but yeah, on the other hand, this is, it's... think the thing is the problem for me is i don't like the character that's the that's my main issue um so, sophie the, just doesn't give a shit about st george so that i really don't give a shit about st george like whatever the, the fight itself as you say it's well written it's got you know gr- dramatic tension i really wish una would just you know kick him to the curb and take the sword up herself because you know i bet she's I, fucking capable she's an actual elf Unlike fucking George, who turns out to be a goddamn mortal, and I'm just going, hmm. I do. What I've noticed is that um, it's at this point, as fair goddess lay that furious fit aside, till I of wars and bloody Mars do sing, 
and Britain Field. So here he's invoking the muse. He's finally invoking the muse. It's like in those films where they leave the sort of opening title thing for like halfway through the movie. Or, so he's left the invoking of the muse for the climax. And I do find that to be like a very, it's like a near automata where you only get the opening title thing on your third playthrough. It is really leaving it late at this point. For me, that kind of reminds me of the trope. Um, it happens in Tangled when Flynn Rider slash, yeah, slash Eugene um, gets stabbed. And it's like, well, before I got here. And um, in Megamind, which is a really good movie. I bet um, you're wondering how I got here. So, yeah, like, it's not, it's a good trope. It's a good storytelling um, tool, I guess, so long as it's used right. Okay, so, you know, again, this is just a fight scene. I can't really go that deep into it. Both, I'd say that both times, quite like the rest of the story. I, in my mind, this battle with the dragon is just meant to be the rest of the book in miniature. So in the rest of the thing, he's fighting the evil within himself. Here, he's fighting an evil without himself. And in the previous part, twice he was captured by evil, twice things outside of himself, outside of the control, saved him from evil. So here, I don't have the exact details, but here, you know, the, the, the dragon knocks him down. And then by pure luck, he is next to either the water of life, picks him up again, or he's next to the tree of life, and that picks him up again. He's not the one who gets back up. It's always something that happens. Lit- I think it's literally just a deus ex machina that saves him in both cases, which is theologically appropriate for this kind of thing, that God helps him defeat what is essentially Satan, the, the devil here. <laughs> <sighs> Anyone have any comments on the fight? Um, it gave me a lot of Disney's Sleeping Beauty Sword of Truth and Shield of Something vibes. Ah, the fuck. I'll admit I've never seen Sleeping Beauty. I, 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 I think I'd probably like the older Disney movies more because I have a feeling they'll, they won't speak in that sort of relatively Josh Whedonist way that the modern ones do. Yeah, yeah, no, thank God. But yeah, no, sort of truth and shield of virtue. It just, like, especially after rising from the lake, it just felt like a, a mystical fairy godmother power-up. Yeah, I wasn't a fan of all the, you know, after all this whole, oh, yes, he's finally worthy to fight the dragon. You have multiple day-sex machinas to help him win, like the tree and the waters of life. It's like, oh, my goodness. He he was told he's ready to win, and he would still lose if not for something else. That just annoyed me. It's like, Remember, Greg, faith alone, faith alone, not acts, Greg. Yeah, but the whole point was, you know, he'd been prepared by all that. So now he's ready. And it's like, well, couldn't he have just stayed in his, like, little spa and just believe that the dragon would keel over and die, and then the dragon would? I have faith the dragon will develop some sort of dragon aids. And then the dragon <laughs> dies. So down he fell, and forth his life did breathe, that vanished into smoke and clouds swift. So down he fell, that the earth him underneath did groan, as feeble so great load to lift. So down he fell, and as in huge rocky cliff, whose false foundation waves have washed away, with dreadful poises from the mainland rift. And rolling down, great Neptune doth dismay. So down he fell, and like a heaped mountain lay. So, <laughs> the dragon's dead. 
Canto 12. This is entirely just, oh, you've saved the day. Now let's have some celebrations now. And now Not- you should marry. But no, I can't. I must go and adventure and prove that I'll I come can back in this. six years' time. Una, stay faithful to me. But I, again, this is sort of like, so they're having a cell. So uh, Una's kingdom has been liberated. Her parents are now free. All the people start dancing around, being happy. And then Una and St. George, they're about to get married. Uh, but then, ah, it's like in a James Bond film. You defeated the big bad, but then the henchmen come back to wreck the celebrations where a messenger comes and says, oh, no, actually, you can't marry because St. George is married to Duessa. But then St. George says, no, no, this is Archimago. He's trying to trick us. And then Archimago is thwarted. He's taken off in chains. He's imprisoned. Uh, so that's when, so we all thought that Archimago was dead, but the greatest trick that ever, ever that, again, I can't say it. I still can't say it. <laughs> the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making you think he was dead on the ground. But he's back now. Yeah, you know, I, I like I like the comparison to a James Bond villain, that the Archmage is Baron Samedi and um, live and let die. Sophie, do you have any thoughts on this? It is it is just a sort of let's have some fun at the end here. Una fucking deserved better. <laughs> yeah, couldn't Una at least killed him? <sighs> I just wish Una had had the chance to fucking stab Archimago with Despair's own knife. Oh, that would have been amazing. I feel that would have been quite wonderful because she had to deal with despair like pretty much the whole time going you know oh woe is me woe is i i did find that a little bit annoying but personally like you know she had every right to be upset with what she was being forced to do just this whole goddamn book one and um say that there is some philosophical justification in saying that truth by herself like just the concept of truth in general is sort of helpless on its own it needs help mm. from other things. It can't. It's like there's that ancient story about there's truth and deceit, and they're both bathing. Truth is in the water, and then deceit steals her clothes and runs away with them. And so truth starts running about saying, oh, no, someone stole my clothes, but everyone's laughing at the naked woman. And so that's sort of the idea of truth. It is true, but also it's not really that strong, is it? Yeah, and I suppose it's it's the whole, if if you can't hear a tree fall, did it did a tree fall like there's that too so i get it but also i wanted poetic justice i wanted the rusty knife in akimago's chest that would have saved this um book one for me because the first half is really fun and then just like um it's it's, well correction it's it's the evil stuff that's fun duessa is quite fun una's life is miserable um george is insufferable and Maybe and... you know, maybe we'd like the other parts of this book, frankly. Um, it's one of those things where sometimes it's the opening of these big classic books that are the thing that put people off. It's like uh, in Paradise Lost. Paradise, in the first book of Paradise Lost, that's where they put the epic catalogue of all the angels. And that puts a lot of people off because no one knows who these angels are and just is incredibly boring and dull. So maybe if we started with book two or book three, maybe we'd have a better opinion of this book. Maybe. And but I've yeah. also looked it up online, and there's the academic book on, um, so the Princess by Princeton University Press by a woman called Catherine Nicholson. And there's a book called Reading and Not Reading, The Fairy Queen. 
Spencer and the making of literary criticism. It's a history of people having a lot of contempt for this book. So there is a, uh, in 1712, somebody said, I am in the country and reading Spencer's Fairy Queen. Pray, what is the matter with me? <laughs> that is an early review. And Virginia Woolf said, the first essential to enjoying this book is, of course, not to read it. Your opinions of this book are not unique. They have been backed up by both the um, the intelligent and unintelligent. It is a book that is a challenge to enjoy. <laughs> I, I just don't know how anyone reads the entirety of it. Like... Okay, that that was a that was a slog to read book one of what was it eight? <laughs> I'd say that there are six full ones, and seven and eight are just a few. One of one of six, then Let, let's be kind and say there's six of those. Yeah, yeah, I I, I don't know how anyone does it. There, there were better things to read even back then. I mean, have you tried to read a lander for your soul? It sort of also has this difficulty about it. I haven't read it, but I, I read, I read Lamont Arthur at some point, um, and I didn't feel like that was that bad. And that was a hundred years beforehand. Or... Yeah, yeah, I read Lamont Arthur for university. I think I can't actually remember anything in it, and I think there must have been there must have been Gawain and the and the Green Knight as well. Um, but yeah, no, I actually rather enjoy the allegory and just how straight they played it but See, that, that's the part i hated the most <laughs> no because i like, mean I, more... I feel greg did you like the most recent matrix film i still haven't seen the most recent i'd say this is a barometer where I, the most recent matrix film it is the level of allegory this is where it is in everything that it means is on the surface and the entire purpose of it is just to make you feel what it is quite obviously telling you. And for that reason, I like The Fairy Queen and I like The Matrix Resurrections. They are both just telling you exactly what they mean. Um, because it was str- so straightforward, I actually didn't understand Archipago's beef with Una. Like, why? why was he... So, because he it says in like Canto two or three that Aki, deliver like um straight up Aki Mago enjoys Una's um misfortune and pain and strife, and it's just like, but it, they never say why. Like, what is the Aki Mago's deal? And um, so that annoyed me as well because that's he's the only outlier on the um, allegory front. But what I mean, the, the, the problem is the Archimago is supposed to simply be the enemy of England. So there is no, like, single enemy of England. All, all we know is that the enemy of England is against truth. Anything, anything that speaks out against England must be a lie. But, like, there was Britain, like, um, you know... Did Britannia as um, a character or, you know, icon exist by then? In which case, who was Britannia's enemy? Like, they must, because Europa um, was born in Europa and then she was uh, kidnapped by Zeus or something. So you would think 
that Europa's mortal enemy would be a giant horned um, boar, not boar, um, beef, cow. What's the aggressive version of a cow? I'm just going to say buffalo because, yeah. So at the moment, we've, I think we've already gotten into our final thought. We've already said that you two don't like this. I like it. Um, We we don't like it, but for different reasons. Yeah. So let us, on that note, let us get into the way we usually end this with going through us and saying one thing that we liked about it. Uh, So I'll begin. The thing that I liked about it was the kind of allegory it is. I do like that it is, this guy is called Sansfois, this guy is called Despair. It is a way of doing let's say, rather basic moral philosophy, but in a way that is entertaining. It is just seeing it you know, as the sort of first... It, 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 rather than just being sort of a fantasy, let's kill all the uh, monsters sort of thing, it has that little bit of allegorical thing, which is an easy bit of thinking uh, tools to use. So I did like that. Greg? Mm-hmm. I have to say, after discussing it and rereading sections of it, I do like how the fights are portrayed. Um, so I will give it that. Um, as much as I didn't like the final fight with the whole, oh, but there's the water and oh, there's the tree of life, the actual fighting themselves were pretty good. So I, I'm going to say the parts I liked with the portrayal of the fighting and the portrayal of the monsters, like the physical portrayal. Yeah, that, that's what I'm calling to be the good part. I I also didn't mind too much this form of stanza he created, the rhyming stanza. I thought it worked relatively well, so I like that as well. I re- remember somewhere where I, it was that lecture series I was talking about where he found the sort of meta level. The, this scholar found a meta level version of the Spencerian stanza. So how many lines are in a Spencerian stanza? Nine yeah, or ten nine. lines in yeah, nine lines in a stanza. He this guy he found a section of nine stanzas and their rhyme schemes were sort of like on a meta level done like a Spencerian stanza. So oh, wow. he, So he's saying that he was apparently he was the first person to discover that. I mean, obviously um Spencer discovered that, but this he was the first person to see, oh actually that's interesting. <laughs> That, he does put attention into his rhyme schemes. This is, it's not just a random thing he did. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean he, he clearly put some real effort into that, so I did like that. Uh, Sophie? Um, I liked the, I liked how surprisingly metal it was. Um, as metal as brutal legend. Yeah, because, um, like, honestly, so, you know, the first canto, we have a knowledge and we have a as as pure and white as a lamb and then they get lost in the woods and I was like oh no and then they go into the cave to find error and then you just and it's a souls game um boss and I'm just like okay clearly I'm in for a ride and um and yeah the battles were well written um the monsters were great the um, seven deadly, deadly sins and uh, demoted Satan as coachman, chef's kiss. Um, 
I just wish the metal had continued into the angels and the fucking, what's the word? The, what's the opposite of sins? Virtues. The virtues as well. The dragon was metal. Like, yeah, no, it was metal. It was cool. Now, perhaps the easier round. (laughs) One thing that you did not like. And for me, while I say I do like this, I do, I am more perhaps tolerant of long drawn out things and more tolerant of this sort of story. I will say that I did not need to hear the backstory of every single character where it will take for a minor character, it will take a 10 stanza detour onto his parents and onto how he got to this point. You could have just mentioned, here's Saturain, a half-human, half-satyr. Uh, you don't need to tell me about his parents. Uh, that was one area where I felt he could have toned up the story. Greg? Um, for me, uh, oh, well, I agree with you on that. I also, <laughs> uh, my other bad thing is what you liked and that is as i said earlier i don't like when oh this person represents fidelity let's call her fidelity uh it just i I don't know what's worse to be honest being overhanded yeah i there's part of me going well at least they're not you know trying to just give it a different name even though it clearly is that so so there's a part of me going he wasn't trying to create a full character. He was just trying to do a personification of an idea. But there's a part of me that just goes, no, I want real characters. Is that too much to ask for? Ah, but there is a real character. Only one real character. And that is St. George. And everything else is his but, rounded but personality. He isn't, he isn't a real ah! character. He's a fucking blank sheet. That is <laughs> it. You can't look for his psychology inside of him. You have to look for it outside of his head. There are no characters in this, and I hate it. It's all about uh, archetypes and ideas, and I don't like it. So, yes, so that, that's my whinge. So uh Yeah, I George, George is a... I genuinely believe this would be a much better story if he was just not in it. Una's like, I'm going to try. I'm, I'm looking for ways to slay my, my parents' dragon. And Archimago's like, all right, Duessa, Duessa, let's let's fuck her up. And just Duessa's just doing her Duessa things with uh the Sans Boy brothers. The Sans brothers. Insert um Undertale. Yeah, that's the one. I was about to say Delta Rune. It's like, no, that's same maker, wrong game. But yeah, un- insert Undertale joke. Actually, it would be a lot more fun if George was a soulless undead that <laughs> he is trying to be human. No, yeah, no, this would be much a, a much better story and much more believable if St. George wasn't St. George, but like a Pinocchio, a soulless being that is trying to be human. Because clearly he's not. He's just an idea that is given an origin story to the author doing his best and failing to give him an arc that is that makes him worthy of sainthood state, but he's not. Una deserved better. And this would make a great game. This would make a great uh, JRPG. And that was 
Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, book one. Is this the first in a series of six episodes we're going to be doing on Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen? It is not. To... <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. It, it, has, it has to be good. It has to have a lady triumph over a fuckboy. Oh, bright Mark. Well, maybe we could do book three. That has a female knight. Okay. Okay. Okay, that's, that's tempting. That's tempting. I oh, will that's an example that. of Renaissance warrior woman. That's it. But that is the Fairy Queen. Next time, we are going to be doing Henry VI, Part 2. Why not Part 1? Because apparently Part 2 and 3 were written first. Part 2. That was Episode 5 of Shakespeare Play-by-Play on Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. Biographical information of Edmund Spencer was taken from his entry in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography by Andrew Hadfield. Various notes came from the Penguin edition of The Fairy. Thank you for listening.